pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, lizard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, Spreaker, Stretcher, whatever, including WCET Radio out of Columbia, South Carolina. I am your hostess with the most is the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis Courageous C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, <laughs> Curtis. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing okay. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what America would look like if uh, they decide to dump Joe once he got in, if he got in, and then we have to um, have Madam President Kamala Harris. I don't know who's worse, <laughs> her or AOC. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. Well, I, we have so much to talk about today, and I have to apologize. Last night, um, I had taken my mom to her doctor visits, and I got home, went to boot up my computers, and my studio computer that I run the radio show on completely crapped out. I mean, the hard drive is fried. Now, I had a problem with this computer about a year and a half ago. Someone went to do an alleged repair on it and caused my system to crash, so I took it into a local uh, store, front, and they did marvels on the computer, got it back up and running, and... I was using the computer for the last year and a half, no problems whatsoever. But it decided, said, hey, listen, I'm a senior citizen computer. I'm 10 years old, and I'm going to bomb out on you, which it proceeded to do. So, Ready last to night, give up the get, ghost. Oh, man. <laughs> I had to put a fork <laughs> in it and bury it. Um, so last night, I ended up pulling up the backup computer, which is a newer computer, believe it or not, and got that up and running. And uh, finally, <laughs> hopefully I got everything going. And you that are listening in on WCET are listening, able to hear us. So uh, we're a work in progress today. That's all I can say. <laughs> Most certainly. <laughs> yeah, we are up live. And I see that we are up live on Facebook. Um, I'm just going to, I'm just, what the heck? I don't know. I, I, I've got even the uh, backup computer I have with the audio and everything is um, an older computer. It's got Windows 8 on it, which I hate. I despise that with a passion. Um, So I'm trying to make sure I get this up and start the watch party. Here we go. Starting the watch party over on Facebook. So bear with me, and I'll get those (laughs) invites out to everyone. (laughs) But here we go. Now we're up on the watch party up on Facebook. So I I think I'm going to crap this computer out and put the newer one over here. So much to do. Anyway, nothing ever goes smoothly. You notice that, Curtis? (laughs) Yeah, we get days like that. Yeah, we do. It only makes it more interesting. Oh, that's that's for sure. That is for damn sure. Anyway, want to welcome everyone that is listening in over on the Facebook Live as well as in Blog Talk Radio Live and WCET uh, Radio at Oak. Columbia, South Carolina. We have so much to talk about, and Camilla Harris is going to be probably center topic uh, in the first part of the show. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable what we're being hit with, and now um, we have this push for mail-in ballots nationwide. And you know what, Curtis? You know what I say? 
go for it. I honestly tell people, go for it. Let them do the mail-in ballots. And the reason being, and catch this, the vast majority of people that will actually show up at the polls to physically vote are not going to be Democrats. They will be conservatives. They will be independents. They will be Republicans. And if you show up at the poll, you have a 99.9% chance of having your vote actually being counted. You know, there's going to be some poll places that are going to have glitches. You know, that's understandable. I don't think there's ever been an election without a glitch in it, be it from door catcher to president. There's always going to be some sort of a glitch in it. But if you rely on the mail-in ballots, you're relying on the U.S. Postal Service. And this is a true story, a personal story. Last Wednesday, not this past week, the week before, I get in my mail, in my email, a photocopy of all the letters I'm supposed to be receiving that day. Last Wednesday, August 6th, 6th, I get this email, and there's supposed to be eight pieces of mail in my mailbox. I go back to my mailbox. I can't tell you how many times. Finally, around 6 o'clock, I checked it one last time. There was not a single piece of mail. Now, so far, these email notifications that the post office does and tells you what's coming in the mail has been very accurate. But for eight pieces of mail to not reach my mailbox on Wednesday the 6th, that's unusual. And then I checked these photocopies against all the incoming mail since that date. Not one of those eight pieces of mail has shown up yet. It has been a week and a half, and those eight pieces of mail that mail U.S. Postal Service was supposed to deliver to me never arrived. Now, what is your chance of your mail-in ballot arriving at your election, wherever, whatever, your, your voters, whatever you've got in your state or in your county or parish? If it does not arrive at the election commission by a certain date and is counted and logged in or registered or whatever you want to call it, being marked as an official vote within a certain time period, it will never be counted. And by federal law, it is called the safe harbor. All votes must be validated within 35 days of the national election. So our election is on the 3rd of November. So if by midnight on the 7th of November, your ballot has not arrived, arrived at its destination or has not been counted and certified, that ballot is tossed out. So go ahead. Let the Democrats vote by mail. And absentee balloting, too, also has to be certified. So if your election committee, commission, or whatever you want to call it, doesn't certify your absentee ballot, which is treated very much like a mail-in ballot, that ballot is tossed. You want your vote to count, show up at your polling places. And everyone's going to go, oh, the coronavirus, we're going to get all sick. We're gonna have to blah, blah, blah. Wait a minute. I voted <clears throat> in the primary in person at the polling place. If you go to Walmart or to your local grocery store or drugstore or out to your local takeout restaurant or whatever, if you're out there in public and going into a public place, you are going to be less safe than if you go to your polling place because safe distancing will be adhered to. Um, They're going to ask you to wear your face mask or face shield. Now, what they did was when we walked in, They had a box of masks there in case you didn't have a mask, and they would present you with one, and you leave with it because they don't want it back. They'll toss it in the garbage. But someone went up to the voting machines, wiped them down after each person voted. 
Do you see that at Walmart? Every time you touch something on the shelf, do you see a store employee running around behind you to wipe it down? Your polling place is going to be far more safe than Walmart. So if you can make you know, it to Walmart, you could make it to your grocery store and walk home safe and healthy, then you can make it to the polling place. Go ahead, Curtis. My concern is with this um, mail-in ballot that they're sending out to everyone in certain states. And the ones who are resisting this basically are the Republican states. But I really believe that the Democrats know that Joe Biden is not going to really win this straight out. So I think their plan is to tie up things and, and prolong the count once all the you know votes are in or supposedly in so they can come up with you know other schemes to to deny Trump you know second term and i really think that's their intent with this um ballot um harvesting and everything else they're doing that's underhanded i think they want to tie up things it it didn't work in 2000 because you remember Gore v. Bush, Bush v. Gore, whatever you want to call it. Um, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. But they had that 35-day safe harbor, and that's the federal law. So even if the Supreme Court gets involved, they have 35 days from the general election to certify all ballots. After day 36, nothing counts, period. So let them tie it up in court. Because it's going to take more than 35 days. They can try to rush it through like they did with Bush and Gore. But it's not going to matter come day 36. It don't mean squat. So go ahead. Do your mail-in balloting. And if the Democratic states push for mail-in balloting, that means that the votes that are going to get counted the most will be those who show up at the polls. And who's the vast majority that will actually show up at the polls? Independents, conservatives, Republicans. So do it. We can take those states back. I mean, you think about every single congressman and senator that's running for election in this general election. They have a better chance if they are a conservative Republican than if they are a Democrat, if they do the mail-in balloting. We can take the Senate back, and we can take a vast majority in the House. I mean, take the House back and keep the vast majority in the Senate. Let me get that correct. (laughs) I'm thinking about Supreme Court Justice um... John Roberts, that guy can throw a monkey wrench in, in pudding <laughs> and stop things. Well, like That's I said, what I'm concerned we'll about if it goes to the Supreme Court. John Roberts. Well, that, that, that will be something to actually look at. Uh, listen, um, those that listen to the show uh, know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And this has all been put together, you know, last minute last night, because like I said, I was up late getting the computers back up and running and making sure all my equipment was working fine. And thankfully, it looks like everything is, (laughs) even though my backup, you know, soundboard, backup laptop, whatever you want to call it, is kind of like crappy slow. But anyway, um, we also were supposed to have someone from the Republican National Committee, the Trump 2020 uh, campaign, but they had it back out last minute. So we've got plenty of time to uh, BS, but let me get the dedication done, uh, Curtis. 
Um, today's dedication is going to be going out to um, Chief Warrant Officer 2nd David Nadel and Chief Warrant Officer 2nd Kurt Fuchigama Jr. They were killed uh, in the, their helicopter crash in Afghanistan's Logar province. And uh, this is from the Military Times. Chief Warrant Officer Kurt Fuchigama and Chief Warrant Officer David Kendall II died November 20th, 2019, while serving during Operation Freedom Sentinel. The Pentagon has identified the two soldiers who were killed in a helicopter crash. Chief Warrant Officer II David Nadel, 33, and Chief Warrant Officer II Kurt Fujigama Jr., 25, were killed after the helicopter crashed in Afghanistan's Logar province. The soldiers, both assigned to the 1st Battalion, 227th Aviation Regiment, 1st Air Cavalry Brigade, 1st Cavalry Division, based out of Fort Hood in Texas, were providing security for troops on the ground at the time of the wreck. Natal from Tarrant, Texas, and Fujigama from Kiano, Hawaii, both deployed to Afghanistan in October of 2019 and served in the Army as Apache helicopter pilots. Natal, who had earned awards including the Bronze Star Medal, the Air Medal, and Army Achievement Medal, joined the Army as an active duty soldier in April of 2013 and was subsequently assigned to the 1st Battalion, 227th Aviation Regiment in April of 2015, according to the 1st Cavalry Division. Fuchigami also earned awards, including the Bronze Star Medal, the Air Medal, and the National Defense Service Medal. He became an active duty soldier in May of 2017 and joined the 1st Battalion, 227th Aviation Regiment in October of 2018. First attack is saddened by the tragic loss of Chief Warrant Officer 2nd David C. Nadel and Chief Warrant Officer 2nd Kurt T. Fuchigama, Jr., Lieutenant Colonel Adam Camerano, commander of the 1227th Attack Reconnaissance Battalion, said in a statement, Our heartfelt condolences go to both families and their friends during this difficult time. He added that both soldiers would always be remembered as part of the heroic legacy of the 1st Cavalry Division, forged by the sacrifices of brave cavalry troopers who have laid down their lives in defense of freedom. The U.S.-led NATO coalition, Resolute Support, said the initial reports did not suggest enemy fire was responsible for the crash. The cause of the crash was under investigation. However, preliminary reports do not indicate it was caused by enemy fire. However, the Taliban later claimed it shot a helicopter in eastern Logar province. And a Taliban spokesperson said the crash happened at approximately 1 a.m., a total of 19 U.S. troops had been killed in combat in Afghanistan in 2019 at that time, marking the highest number of losses since 2014. And this is from Stripes.com. One of the Army pilots killed in a helicopter crash was married with two children and had just begun to have success as a bodybuilder. The Pentagon identified two Fort Hood-based soldiers, Chief Warrant Officer 2nd Kurt T. Fujigama, Jr., and Chief Warrant Officer 2nd David Nadel, as the service members killed in the crash. 
both soldiers died while on a mission in Logar province where the helicopter crashed while providing security for the troops on the ground. Both soldiers were Apache helicopter pilots assigned to the 1227. Fujigama's wife, Mackenzie, called her spouse a strong, courageous soldier and loyal husband. The two met on a blind date, and the Army pilot's determination made him stand out, she said in a phone call. Fujigami knew, starting in high school, that he wanted to be a pilot, his wife said. In flight school, he was known as a diligent student who wanted to be the best at what he did. He wanted a challenge, he loved his country, and he always said he was willing to die for his country, his tearful wife said. The two married this spring, she had said on Facebook, that the time was the best months of my life. In the last messages the couple shared, Fujigama told his wife he loved her and was going to call her soon. That was the last thing he sent me. It was a heart, she said. Natal entered active duty in 2013. He recently took up bodybuilding and was proud to announce on his Facebook page that he could have made all the excuses that he had lost 40 pounds and placed second in his first competition. Linda Natal Redanti, who identified herself as Natal's aunt, said in Facebook that the soldier was married with two children, a boy and a girl. Our heartfelt condolences go to both families and their friends, Lieutenant Commander Adam Camamarano said. The crash destroyed the helicopter that was participating in a night raid, said Dedar Luing, a Logar province spokesman. The burden of death is carried by family and friends. Edward Mitchell, a flight instructor at Fort Rucker, Alabama, could barely speak about Fujigama without choking up. The Mitchell family adopted him after he began flight school in 2017. He was quiet, but he would give you the shirt off his back once you got to know him. Today's show is dedicated to both Chief Warrant Officer Second David Nadel and Kurt Fujigama. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve out there in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its marvelous future. We also dedicate to them, to the first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate this show to them, and we dedicate to them with this song by Todd Allen Herrington, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and
gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for, my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious Late nighters and WCET radio listeners around the world, listen up. The shop is here, and you can order WCET radio and your favorite shows, swag, right now. And show your friends and your neighbors you're awake by wearing one of our many shirts, including our Stop the Censorship shirt. That one is a hot seller, so get yours while supplies last. We have coffee mugs, clocks, so you never miss your favorite shows books, mouse pads, and more coming soon. Just go to WCETradio.com and click the shop link. That's WCETradio.com and get to shopping. All right, and we're back. You're here listening to blog to Southern Sense. I don't even know what I'm doing here today, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Southern Sense. Here on Blog Talk Radio, WCET Radio, SHR Media. Oh, good Lord. iTunes, Mr. Spreaker, Facebook, all the heck. <laughs> Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm the whacked out, wackiest radio chickadee out there. <laughs> oh, my co-host. You, you really have to be Curtis Courageous today, Curtis. Oh man, uh, I, I think I think I need a scotch or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez, if, if anyone could mess up a wet dream, it's me. <laughs> nah. Anyway, oh jeez. All right. Anyway, we we've got so much to talk about. You know, the the big story out there is that Kamala Harris has now been named uh, as. Uh, 
vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party. And, you know, I, I loved it because if you listen to lamestream media, like the crazy CNN and MSNBC and all the other <laughs> nut jobs out there, this is the first Never heard time a, a black woman was nominated as vice president, much less a woman nominee as a vice president. Um, well, what was Sarah Palin? What was Geraldine Ferrara? Uh, weren't those both fairly recent? But as you do a little research, and I mean, this is the little fingers walking through little Google. There were at least, at least 11 women that have uh, had their name placed in as nominee for vice president. The first being in 1884, Marietta Stowe. She was a California newspaper owner. Um, she had her name put in as president, but as vice president, I'm sorry, a California newspaper as president was Belva Lockwood, a woman, and she chose Marietta Stowe as her vice presidential candidate. Uh, let's see now. If we go for the suffrage uh, leadership as here, the great state of South Carolina, Lena Springs, uh, she was in the, shortly after 1920. Uh, let's see, 1952, Charlotta Bass. She was the first black woman candidate for uh, vice president. Uh, let's <clears throat> move a little bit more forward to 1972. Frances Sissy, Sissy, not Sissy, Sissy, Farenhold. Uh, she was an experienced uh, politician because she held a seat in the Texas House of Representatives for four years. Uh, in 1972, she also ran for governor. She was a serious contender uh, for vice presidential candidate until Missouri Senator Thomas Eagleton knocked her off the ticket. Let's see. Tony Nathan, she was also on the Libertarian ticket in 1972. Uh, LaDonna Harris, uh, she was from the Comanche Nation. She was on the Citizens Party ticket for vice president during the 1970s. Uh, and here we go, our favorite terrorist and uh, California professor, in 1980 and 84, vice presidential candidate Angela Davis. And here we go, Geraldine Ferrar, 1984. Uh, let's see, Emma Wong Mar, she was of Chinese immigrant family in 1984. Uh, Wanona LaDuke, uh, she was an economist and a Native American. Uh, she ran in the Green Party ticket in 1996 as VP. And then we have Sarah Palin, who ran on as VP for McCain. So, oh, yeah, Kamala Harris really broke that glass ceiling. Really? How's that for that? Yeah, uh, you are right. Uh, Barbara Jordan tried to run for vice president. She didn't make it through. Shirley Chisholm tried to get on as the vice presidential ticket. She did not make it. Um, so it's a lot more than 11 women tried, but there were 11 women officially listed as vice presidential candidates on their party ticket. There was others that ran that didn't make it, but uh, come on. And we're going to say Camilla Harris broke the ceiling, Curtis. Did I lose you, Curtis? Did I lose my co-host? No, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was um I was looking up some information. Matter of fact, it was Shirley Chisholm who was the first black candidate, you know, female black candidate to represent the um Democrat Party. 
and she she gets no credit. It's not even mentioned. Well, I, I so, no, actually, hey, there uh, were. Was, let's see. Um, she became the first black candidate for a major party. No, actually, it was Charlotta Bass. She was the first black woman candidate for the vice president on the progressive ticket, which is basically the Democratic Party. Uh, there's this no, this, even though it was 1952, I still say progressive and Democrat are one and the same. So I'm just looking at the rest of these. Um, let's see. Lena Springs was also Democratic Party, and that was in the 1920s. Um, let's see who else we had here. Uh, National Equal Rights Party was Marietta Stowe. Um, so I'd say the first woman for the Democratic Party representative was Lena Springs in the 1920s. Well, you know, they, they're they hard-pressed to remember their own history. I remember on the news last week, somebody came out saying that um, um, I think it was Kamala was the first black woman, this and that and the other. <laughs> well, ma- matter of fact, I think yeah. they said the first woman. And I think they totally forgot about Hillary. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. think she took that too well. And that matter was fact, recent. Matter of fact, the first woman to run for president was Elizabeth Woodhull. And her vice presidential pick was Frederick Douglass. So you had a woman with a black male. And that was, I believe, 1864. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But it was Civil War era. Uh, I see people popping up in our studio on, on the phone listening in. If you're listening in, fine. If you want to comment or be part of the conversation, please remember to press 1 on your keypad that I know that you're raising your hand and we'll be happy to bring you in. You know, with this pandemic, before the pandemic broke out, we had the Black Lives Matter movement out there, you know, Curtis. But it was just sitting there on the sidelines. It seems that now that we have this pandemic and everyone's locked up in their homes, it's like a free-for-all. And it's gotten so bad that this popped up last night in Seattle. The rioters and looters and thugs and all those other Democratic voters uh, have gotten so bad that they went into private neighborhoods, banging on people's doors, shining their lights in their windows, demanding the homeowners surrender their house to the mob. They're saying, you owe us, turn your house over to us. Can you, can you believe that? Ah, we've yeah, got a friend of, our, of yours and ours uh, sitting, sitting here in the studio. I want to welcome onto the show. Always fun to have him. Love him to death. K. Carl Smith. Good afternoon, K. Carl. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Can you hear me okay? Oh, oh yeah. loud and clear. Loud and clear. Okay, Thank great. you for popping <laughs> over. And, you know, he might just also. know that Frederick Douglass was um, the pick for that uh, vice presidency that you were mentioning, Annie. Yeah, uh, pull, pulling a little uh, memory string out here, on the ticket with Dr. With, uh, Elizabeth Woodhull when she ran for president, I think it was 1864, uh, her pick for vice president at that time was Frederick Douglass, correct? That, that is correct, yeah. Matter of fact, what's so interesting about that, they had so much respect for Frederick Douglass, he did not know that he was – uh, nominated to be on the ticket, they, he found out after the fact. 
which that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I do yeah. remember. It, it, it wasn't a serious candidacy, right. but, you know, it, when we hear that um, they say Hillary Clinton, first woman to run for president, we hear Camilla Harris, first woman to be picked for a vice presidential, presidential nominee, that's not the truth. That's not the fact. No, the Republicans beat the well, it wasn't the Republican Party. I think there was the Equal Rights Party at that time. Uh, no, they're not. They're yeah, not which the first. was the, it's really sad yeah, it was the precursor. Exactly. Yeah, right. it was the precursor exactly to right. the um, to the Republican Party. So to speak, the Republican Party started in 1854. This was like 10 years later. Right. Yeah. Like but the same mindset of liberty-minded people is is sure what the Democrat Party. Let's put it that way. Okay. It was not the Democrat. No, that's no, for no sure. They ever. <laughs> hey, hey, uh, sure. hey, uh, hey, Curtis, I, I got a question for you all. I, I want to turn the tables around a little bit. All what right. Do you think, what do you think of Joe Biden's campaign promises to black Americans? In, in particular, when he said he wants to <clears> nominate, <throat> he wants to pick the first black female to be on the Supreme Court. What's your thoughts the first on that? First black what? As, 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 First black Supreme Court, female Supreme Court justice. Well, I would say, like everything with the Democrats, so everything is race. Everything's your skin color. It's not not about the context of your character. You know, the things that Martin Luther King, you know, espoused. With them, yeah, yeah. it's it's like a chessboard game. You know, they're not interested really in who you are. And if I was Kamala Harris, I would be a little offended that I was just chosen because of my my sex and my mm-hmm. my, my race. I I, can't, I I'd agree. I agree with that. They are the left. They are obsessed with race. They are obsessed with it. And and my thinking is, no. Joe Biden had been in politics for over forty years. What did you do for forty years? And how come you didn't make it an issue or concern when you were the vice president? He had a chance to do something then. So now he want to use it now to get our vote. And to me, look, I understand the issue of race is a concern. And I understand all that, but that's not, that's not my number one concern when I walk out, outside my house every day. I don't walk outside my house every day looking for the, the boogeyman and, and who's going to play the race card. And be, be, I'm looking for a better opportunity to provide my fam- for my family and my my obligations in terms of economic prosperity. That's my number one concern. How to keep food on the table and take care of my obligations. Not the not the issue of race. That that's not on my mind. I deal with it if I have to confront it, but I don't walk out of the house with that the first thing on my mind every day. The first thing on my mind is economic prosperity. So it goes from a quote that my dad told me a long time ago, Curtis, he said, Son, in terms of freedom he told me about about ten years ago. He said in terms of freedom so black folks, we are we are as free as we're gonna be. The rest of it you gotta buy. <laughs> so that's <laughs> how I'm thinking. And Joe Biden's going he wants to undo everything economically speaking the president has put in place. He wants to get rid of the opportunity zones. Okay? And, and just focus on that he's gonna get our vote, just focus on race. I, I agree with you. I'm 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 actually sick of him. Well, I've been sick of him. I'm just I'm just it's just pathetic. How they yeah, I get tired of hearing it every day. Yeah. Every day, the same old 
um, modus operandi, you know, race, class envy, and yeah. America yeah. is not great. And race baiting. That's right. Oh, yeah. So we got to win in November, man. We got to win this thing in November. And cause they're going to do everything they can, the other side, to cheat to win. Uh, but we got we to pull this out. We're in a fight for our lives here. And I think we will. Well, it's, imperative. it's imperative that well, you know, we get this man back in there. Well, absolutely, Curtis and Carl. Um, it, it's going to be a ballot box revolution. That's what I'm going to call it. I've been calling that for quite a while in the last several shows. Ballot box revolution. And I, I say go ahead. Do the mail-in voting because the vast majority of people that are going to send in their mail-in ballot if it actually reaches its destination, courtesy of the U.S. Postal Service, uh, will be the left. It'll be the Democrats, the progressives, the liberals, the communists, the Marxists. They're the ones that are going to sit at home mailing in a ballot, which may or may not get counted within that safe harbor window. And we will show up at the polling place. I mean, as I said before, if we can go out to the grocery store, if we can go out to Walmart or go out to a takeout restaurant and bring food home or even sit down outdoors and dine, then what makes you think going to the polling place would be any less safe? I agree. I agree. I agree. I I think what's really going on, the left has gone so far left um, that – and they're embracing anything that's evil or chaotic. They really have embraced all that. So as I sit back and look at what's going on with the left, I think God has turned them over to their reprobate mind. I mean, you go talk about infanticide. You talk about uh, chaos when it comes to the uh, rule of law. And, and Americans see what's going on. They saw what happened in Seattle and what's going on in other places. Um, they have, the left has no sense of conscience anymore. So with that in place, don't they don't, they they don't see things that we, that we see. I don't think they ever did. And to think, to think that um, when they approach uh, social problems or social issues or whatever, they, when they can't persuade people to do things, then they go about mandating. And it's just like Joe Biden now. He wants to mandate people wear masks for three months. You know, they don't believe in freedom of choice. They don't believe we know what's best in our interests. And I think that's a pathetic way to think of your fellow, you know, countrymen and women, that you have to mandate everything. I mean, where is it constitutional that the government gets to tell us that we have to wear something specific? You know, didn't I try that in Nazi Germany with the Star of David? Isn't that, again, you know, imposing federalism upon a free people? Well, remember, they believe that the Constitution is a living and breathing, you know, document. So they can change it and make it malleable to fit their their agenda. But, you know, I think that's another fight that we we are facing to um, preserve the Constitution and the Bill of Rights more than anything, because these guys get in, it's all going to change. The, the, to me, to me the, the, the most effective counter message to Marxism is Frederick Douglassism. So thank God we have the literary legacy of Douglass 
We have all these writings that refute the lies and the false rhetoric of the left and Marxism and this whole socialist agenda. Douglas counters all that with his, when he wrote about free speech, personal responsibility, economic prosperity, the role of government, legal immigration, school choice, women's rights, the right to keep and bear arms. So Douglas wrote about all these things. So when you take that, when you take the words of a former slave, and you lay that against a Karl Marx, I mean, <laughs> liberty-minded people embrace Karl. I mean, embrace Frederick Douglass. That's why they come here. That's why they come to America. And one thing I, I did some—I was doing some research. You no, know, Karl Marx and Frederick Douglass were both born the same year. They were both born in 1818. Uh, Karl Marx came out with his Communist Manifesto. I want to say 1848. I want to say 1848. Um, and what I found out in my readings and research, Karl Marx was a subscriber to Douglass' newsletter. In particular, when Douglass wrote about humanity. So Karl Marx cherry-picked Douglass. Of course, they both, had, they both had different schools of thought. One was in terms of robbing people of their God-given rights, and Douglass wanted to make sure people had their God-given rights. So, it's an interesting parallel, but it went two different ways. Yeah, it, 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 it was uh, it was eighteen forty eight. Okay. And what I find interesting is in this new movement, this Black Lives Matter movement, it's basically people are lazy. They want things given to them rather than where someone like you or I, we want to earn your respect. We want to earn whatever we do accomplish in life, and we want to be respected for what we have accomplished. Today, they just want everything handed to you. You know, I, I was born, so therefore you owe me. Well, I, hello, people. No one except for our Lord Jesus ever asked to be born. We have no choice where we are born to whom we are born. But once we are born and we become cognizant, responsible adults, we are then responsible for any and every action we take from that point forward. Up until then, you know, it, it's just a matter of God's will to whom we are born. What we do with what we are given, that's the important part of our life. But that's not what they're looking at. What they're seeing is, well, simply because I'm here and because of the accident of my color of my skin, then I deserve this or I owe you that. No, that's not how it works. That's not what Frederick Douglass did. Is it? No, not at all. He even though Douglas lived in a state of being born into slavery, he never really saw himself as a victim, but he saw himself as an overcomer because he, he, he believed that he was not ordained to be a slave, that God didn't make him a slave, man made him a slave. So with that sense of identifying and having a God in your life helped him to overcome those challenges and have a different perspective too. Because Douglas said on one occasion that the first aim of slavery is to separate an individual from his or her God. That's the first aim. When you, when you think less of yourself, you don't see yourself as, a, as an overcomer, you're, you're a victim, uh, and then you go along with what somebody else has to tell you versus what your, what your word has to tell you when it comes to overcoming and being an inspiration, being the best you can be, uh, having some self-dignity, a sense of uh, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. And that comes out of the word. But with the left, they want to tell you well, otherwise. 
Well, isn't that the purpose of what they have right now of shutting down all these churches, of separating us from our God, to take away that sense of purpose? Uh, you know and if we take away God, then what are we dependent upon? Government. That's a very good point because they're doing this incremental, incrementally. That's what people don't realize. It's not going to be full-blown in your face. You're doing a little bit at a time, and each step is a gateway to something bigger. So, like you said, we got to be wise, and we got to be vigilant enough to recognize that it's an incremental process. we got to stop it while it's still in its emphasis steps. If not, it's going to be too late. And you're right. we got to – what's going on? Um, they're using the mass of COVID to in, encroach upon our, our worship. That's dangerous. It tells us that we, if we go to church, we worship, we can't sing, we can't praise to our God, that, that kind of stuff. So we gotta be, yeah, we gotta be very, uh, we gotta be very watchful of what's going on. Yeah, we gotta be very watchful because it, it doesn't take but one time for the government to take some rights away. Once you once once you lose that right, you don't get it back. It takes forever to get it back. Well, sometimes it takes a civil war. You know, this this is what they're doing to us, though. And you, you can't have more than fifty people inside the church. Well, what if the church holds a thousand people? You can only have fifty people in there. What if we did they don't safe care. distance? They don't care. It's their ability to impose government will upon the people instead of the people imposing yeah. their will upon the government, which our founding fathers intended. You know, it's really upsetting with this whole thing, this whole COVID nineteen. Based on my understanding, I'm coming from wrong. This is all over a man-made laboratory-created virus. Somebody That's created true. this thing. That's and, true. And, and they, they play gods. They want to play gods. My, my, my personal opinion is I think Bill Gates and Fauci, they should be brought up on charges with the United Nations for a crime against humanity. No, don't put them in jail. They need to be executed. Oh, they're the darlings I, of the left. No, I, I actually agree. I believe Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio should also be prosecuted for mass murder. I mean, this is the largest amount of mass killing ever in the United States. You know, I, I pulled up some statistics, and we're looking at the COVID deaths, which is something like around 166, 168,000 here in the United States alone. But if we look at the statistics for heart attack and cancer deaths, Cardiac-related deaths in the United States and cancer deaths, two different statistics. Both of them are more than half a million. I believe cancer is something around over 600,000 compared to 166,000 with COVID. We don't shut down the, co- the country because people are dying from cardiac uh, uh, incidents. We're not shutting down the country because people are dying from cancer, and yet you are five times more likely to die from cancer or a heart attack than you are from COVID, yet we shut the nation down. Annie, I had this conversation with a friend the other day, and I was trying to explain to her that more people die from the common flu three times as much than COVID-19, but she was sold on the fact based on what she heard in the media that COVID was a more deadly disease, you know, as though the intensity of the, the, 
the the surroundings of that disease makes it more deadly. Because you say, well, why are you interested in the focus on numbers? I said, well, to me, that's what makes it deadlier, you know. If it's killing more people, if it's not killing more people, I shouldn't be as concerned about it. But because it's in the media 24-7, COVID-19, that's the thing people are going with. So they are scared to death. They're not using their minds, their heads, or critical thinking or anything to look at the numbers to see, you know, which one is more deadlier than the other, which meaning to, to me, which one is killing more people. Well, you know, even with that, uh, Curtis, they, they, they've been cooking the books when it comes to statistics, you know, That's from true. labs in Florida. Yeah, so we don't, they, they, they've, been, they've been cooking the books to hype the statistics to create more hysteria. That's and right. Really hysteria should be because you're right. The death rate is not like it for the for the H1 virus when it came out, the, all those other virus, all the other pandemics yeah. that came out. And one H1 grabbed media attention. Yeah. It's so it's, it's so yeah, it's, well, really yeah. you, it's really that you know that the other side is really desperate to really change, change this world and make sure Trump Trump don't get reelected. Well, you know, another thing is with wearing the masks, there is another side effect. People are coming up with more respiratory infections because of the mask. Yeah, you think about yeah. that. Your nose is a natural filter. When you exhale, you're supposed to be exhaling all those bad germs that are in your body. With the mask, you're re-inhaling them and putting them back into your lungs. I cannot wear a mask any longer. Every time I do, I go into respiratory distress, and my face breaks out in acne really bad. So I had to go to my doctor, sit down and talk to him and everything, and he finally said, you can't wear a mask. So instead I bought one of these face shields, which is slightly better, but not much. You're better off breathing the air around you. Just be smart about it. If you're worried about catching the virus, do that safe distancing. Do the elbow bump. Be outside more than inside a building. That's, That's one of the best things to do. Get out more. Yep. So, look, I just want to call you guys, say hello to you, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a minute, and uh, wish you all the best. And you're in a fight. Thank you all for being in a fight and, and to inspire people with truth, and that there is an answer. We will win, but we got to go through it all to get to where we need to be. But it's just going to be a fight. The other side is going to keep, so we're not going to give up. Yep. Absolutely, Kay Carl. It's always a pleasure talking to you. As a matter of fact, you had been on my mind just recently over the last few days. So I'm glad you did call in. You know, great minds think alike. That's right. I know I'm always on Curtis' mind, so that's not, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you're always welcome to call in anytime because you are such a good friend of the show. and appreciate it. God bless you for the hard work. Are you, do, you have, do you have any projects going on right now that you want to let us know about? You know, because of uh, this whole situation with the BLM movement and George Floyd's uh, death, I've been very involved uh, going across the country. Well, I just picked up, just started, just started about three weeks ago. But really uh, talking to liberty-minded people, the friends of freedom, conservatives, about how to counter the Marxist message. So I've been doing a lot of teaching and coaching on how to, what is a Frederick Douglass answer to the Marxist agenda? What does Douglass have to say? And teaching, empowering and teaching conservatives how to leverage that 
into their, their conversation. So that's a game changer. The other thing I'm working on is, is to um, just get ready to close on a property here in Birmingham that's in the Opportunity Zone. Um, and we're going to launch a Frederick Douglass Steam Academy in 2022. It'll be a, mm. It's going to be a private Christian school. Um, we'll probably start with first the from kindergarten to fourth grade. Um, and we have a Frederick Douglass, and we'll also have a Frederick Douglass Liberty Curriculum. And what I mean by that, we're going to train and teach these young people, the next generation, how to become Frederick Douglass Liberty Ambassadors to counter the Marxist, uh, the Marxist agenda that's out there. Oh, awesome. And where so can people what, find you? That's my biggest problem. Uh, the website is K-Call, yeah, dot com. And I'll also give my, I need to give my business line. Can I do that? People want to contact me sure. on my business line. And that's area sure. code 205, area code 205 312 9985 
Well, Mason, thank you for the comment. You know, I'm, I'm going to walk away from the one on Mars because I do believe the last Mars probe up there did locate water underground on Mars. So that's up to the scientists to underground. debate. But as, yeah. uh, underground. Underground, yes. I, uh, but I, as to, I, we've discussed the face masks numerous times, and you are correct. There, there is a higher thanks. incident of uh, respiratory infections as well as, you know, staph infections on the face. Um, it's also a higher uh, carbon dioxide that's left inside uh, the blood. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that go on when you're wearing the face mask that is not healthy. Uh, so, yeah, we've discussed this on several. Matter of fact, um, there are several websites up there that do go through the med- medical statistics in dealing with the masks. Uh, as I said, uh, I've also written up a pamphlet, which I offer to anyone that wants to contact me, uh, dealing with the HIPAA Act as well as the Americans with Disabilities Act, how these masks and the mandatory use of them are in violation of both. Um, when I went to take my computer in for repair, I walked into the shop without a mask, and I said, listen, medically, I can't wear it. I carry with me a note from my doctor. So if I am challenged, it says, hey, listen, he doesn't state what the medical reason is, but I cannot wear it, period. You ask me what the medical reason is, you will be violating the HIPAA Act, which can carry 10 years federal time in jail, and up to $250,000 in fines. You violate the Americans with Disability Act by denying the services that is available to the public. You are now in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which can carry up to $150,000 fine for every incident of that violation. So we've got to put these facts out there for the public. You cannot challenge me on why I'm not wearing a mask because then automatically you violate the HIPAA Act. So I carry this pamphlet around with me, and if I get challenged, I just pull the pamphlet out. You want to deny me service, then you're going to be talking to an attorney, or you'll be leaving here in handcuffs. You have a choice. So that's the way I look at it, Curtis. Yeah, the only place I will wear masks is in a medical facility, and and I can understand that. I don't want to catch anything they got there. Well, you know, I had to take my mom to the doctor, and we had to go to two different doctors. I wore the face shield, but when it was just my mom and I in the room, I raised it so I could breathe easy because it was fogging up. And that causes another hazard because if you can't see, what's the point? (laughs) You know? And I I really crack up when I see people sitting alone in the park or something like that, and there's no one around them for like hundreds of feet, and they're wearing a mask. Or I I see see it every day. Crazy. They're driving by themselves in the car or with their spouse in the car or the kids in the car, and they're wearing masks. I mean, excuse me, are you wearing them at home too? Is that how, how ridiculous you really think you are? You know, come on. There's got to be a point where we say enough is enough. Now, Chris, is this our friend Karen popping in and out of the uh, studio here? Let me see. Uh, I don't think that's her. Let me see. I'll check. Okay. All right. Anyway, um, while Curtis is checking in on the caller over here, I pulled this up from um, this was on the Daily Conservative. Uh, (laughs) I love this. It reads, Mayor Mayor Bill de Blasio was just busted in New York City. The far left mayor has been caught red handed and President Donald Trump is laughing. The truth is now public. it further goes on, quote, this is utter nonsense, said Michael Lepetri, a Republican member of the New York State Assembly, 
referring to de Blasio's coronavirus checkpoints put up around the city. I mean, 20,000 deaths from COVID from New York City alone over these past few months, but de Blasio just trying to make it look like he's flexing some kind of political muscle. Now, this is, this is funny because they're locking everyone up in New York City in their homes, in their apartment buildings. Um, they're putting the homeless into the subway at night. Now, if you're in an apartment building, you're sharing recycled air with other residents in that apartment building. Now, think about this. You may have a tenant, say, on the third floor that has coronavirus. You're going to be breathing the same recycled air. That tenant on the third floor, if you're on the first floor, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, 20th floor, you're all breathing the same recycled air. So what's the point of locking yourselves into your homes, especially if you're a multi-family unit. It makes no sense. And you're less likely to get the coronavirus if you're outside in the sunshine. The ultraviolet rays are the best thing to kill the virus. And plus, the dispersal is far less. Now, I always get, I was reading about the, the, the um, effectability of these masks that everyone's wearing. And they, now they come out with these gaiters, these things that wrap around your neck and you pull up over your face are the worst because they're made of such fine material. If someone were to splatter their germs onto you accidentally when they're talking to you, these things break up the particles into tiny minuscule ones. Instead of having one glob that hits your mask and drops off and doesn't penetrate these little tiny particles are going to penetrate those gaiters, those little things that you pull up from your neck over your face. It makes twice as many, ten times as many little globules out there. It, 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 people, do your research before you start buying this crap. Anyway, we have a caller in on the line. Aaron, good afternoon. You're listening to Southern Sense. Um, your host is Annie, the radio chickadee, and Curtis C.S. Bennett. You have a question or comment for us. Um, I like. I understand masks are important, but really, how long do you think this will will be in effect? To where, or do you think it will always be in effect, even after maybe coronavirus is over? To where the norm is to wear a mask in public. The norm will end on November fourth. The the masks mandatory masks will end. I guarantee it. November fourth. You're not going to hear anyone pushing for masks after the election on November 3rd, because then... And that, I believe. They're, what, they're if, what if Donald Trump wins, thought. though? You think there will still be the masks? Donald Trump wins. November 4th, there will be so many people looking for their safe space, their crying towels, their uh, therapy animals, or chia pets, safe or whatever. Zone. November 4th, the, the left is going to have a massive breakdown. Worse than they did I mean, last right, time. Right now, the death rate is so low, where I don't even understand why it's really causing a mass panic still. Because people it's are not, the not informed. My, it's not the political and, uh, message they want to put across. In my hometown, they've had 100 cases, zero deaths, and still freaking out daily about it. Yeah, the death rate per the population of the United States, per population is one of the lowest in the world. With the exception of New York, 
Massachusetts, New Jersey, California, democratically led states, they're the ones that have the numbers up for us. If you took them out of the equation, you're less than one hundredth of a percent. That is point zero 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 one. Florida, Florida is a uh, state too that's been really hot. With, but, you know, Florida, has, Florida has a, a lot of cases, but a lot of these people aren't even showing any symptoms, and it, it doesn't, you know, cases doesn't equate to death sentence. Yeah. And that's the way the does, media is playing Florida, this off. How does Florida's death per case compared to like a New York? Is it is it about the same or is it extremely lower? No, it's, we're close. It's definitely lower than New York per per really? per population. Definitely lower. But you have to also understand Florida has a large senior citizen population, and the deaths that you're seeing are people over the age of sixty. Most of them over the age of seventy-two. Many of them in these senior centers that are not equipped to handle the virus. And you've got to understand I mean, also, New York really had it mandated that you had to take a coronavirus patient into a nursing home that doesn't have in the New skills, York. does not yeah. have the facilities to battle this virus. They should have been left in a hospital environment where they're trained, they have the ability for the sanitation, they have the ability for the treatment. Nursing homes are nothing more than a large apartment building for senior citizens. You're, you're shoved into a small area. You're given one room and one bathroom. Mm-hmm. Sometimes senior citizens share rooms. I mean, they dumped my husband in one a number of years ago when he was recovering from you know, his illness. And I walked in there and I, I flipped. They're not well maintained. They don't have skilled nursing in there. They don't have 24-7 doctors. Like the like the people like the older gener- the, uh, the senior citizens that are passing away, I mean even even the flu will, would be able to put an effect on this where it could put them, you know, near death as well. So I mean it's not it's not like COVID or COVID is exactly like, you know, the only deadly, you know, um, virus there is that can affect. Them. I mean the flu would do just as much damage I think with the older. People, then, I mean, this is as much as COVID will. Well, the common flu is killing more people. It is killing more. And my question is if we're going through all these um, safe um, practices like um, social distancing and wearing a mask, why isn't the number of common flu cases coming down? You think what we're doing would impact all types of viruses? You are more likely to die from the flu three times more than you would statistically, you have three times more chance of dying from the common flu than from COVID. You have five to six times more chances of dying from cancer than from COVID. And the statistic for, you know, heart attack is even higher than that. So, you know, you can die from cancer, from the flu, from a, a cardiac condition. More likely to do that than from COVID. And if you look at the population, I did the statistics, I sent it over to a friend. Nationwide, it's 0.0014 of the population that have died. Not a full percent. You're less than 1%. You're closer to 1,000 of a percent. 
Exactly, and, and that's the reason I don't understand some of these strict mandates to where they are just, you know, 25% capacity for restaurants, bars are closed, and literally, like, you know, I mean, it's not really affecting people the way that a deadly disease should. I mean, I mean if it's well, that deadly, we- numbers, numbers should be extremely higher. Aaron, what do we have coming up in like 80-something days? A presidential (laughs) election. That's why you see what you're seeing. Absolutely. I mean, it's all politics. Do you think you've got elections over, this will go away? I mean, I... I believe so. I believe so. It's a weapon that has been turned into a weapon now. If they lose... I mean, it's, it's not going to serve them any any further, you know? I mean, I just don't know. I mean, because if a Democrat gets in office, I feel like it's going to be even more strict. First, like, I don't feel like governors will have the control over the state. I think it'll go through Biden and then down instead of even giving each governor the control over their own state for, like, the mandates they want for their state to be under. Well, you see, this is why we need to get more Republicans in both houses, because we we not only need to get Trump back in the White House, we need to take control over the House and increase our lead in the Senate. If we do that, all this stuff will go away because Democrats will be powerless. And you know one thing that could that could that could help also is if our government, the people involved in our government, were younger than you know. I mean, most of them's what 70, 60, 80 years old. I mean, I just I don't know. Their their beliefs and everything are still kind of shrewd compared to our younger generation. That I mean. You know, a guy like in the 40s and 50s, I think, would do much greater in office, no matter Democrat or Republican, than, you know, the two 70-year-old men we have going against each other right now. Well, we actually have a lot of younger people running, a lot of them coming out of the military. Just check check, um, your local, you know, newspaper. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was was going to well, Aaron, we need to first off put term limits in. We have to get a, a constitutional amendment to impose term limits. And that way we can get a turnover in the House, in the Senate more often, instead of having a career politician that has been holding office since 1972, Joe Biden. Uh, we need to get rid of career politicians, Nancy Pelosi. We need to turn around and turn over these seats, Charlie Rangel. Uh, this is what we need to do. And if you look at the, the group of people that are running in this upcoming general election, you see a lot of youth out there, people in their 30s and 40s, people coming out of the military that have served and want to serve again. And many of them are saying, I will only serve X amount of terms, and then I walk away and let someone else take my spot. Like your friend, Curtis, Ted Yoho. Uh, he said, that's it. I've served the terms I promised, and I'm walking away and letting someone else younger than me to take the seat. You know, this is what we need our politicians to do. Now, right now, I've reached out to two individuals that are running to challenge Andrew Cuomo in his reelection. 
so, you know, they're young. They are active conservatives. One is black conservative. The other one is an Italian-American conservative. You know, we're getting them coming out of the woodwork saying, enough is enough. I'm tired of this crap, and maybe I can help make a difference and keep this republic going. That's exactly. That's, I mean, I 100% agree with that. Like, that's, that's the only thing that could that could help this country turn around. Well, we I need you to, to run, Aaron. We need you to run. I mean, you never know. One of these one of these days, I might do it. But I appreciate y'all having me on. I'll let you get on with your show. Well, thank you very much, Aaron, and uh, thank you for the call. And keep on being a listener. Check out our website at Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. If anyone else wants to call in, it's area code 917-889-3675. I really should mention that phone number a little more often, Curtis. I think I may do it like once every 10 shows <laughs> to encourage our listeners to uh, call in. Yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, this is fun because we don't normally get a lot of callers, but uh, Kay Carl started the ball rolling here. And I'm glad he's getting out there and teaching Frederick Douglass, which is what we need uh, more people to do. You know, very few states require the founding documents and founding fathers to be taught to the students. And uh, I know Texas is doing it. We here in South Carolina do it. We require it on public schools. Uh, K through 12 schools. We also require schools, uh, co- universities, and colleges also to teach it. And you know, we have to push back against teacher unions. Now, here, South Carolina is a right-to-work state, so we don't have teacher unions. But if you look at the problem states that you're having with education, they're all controlled by teacher unions. True. And uh, I think it's time we bust the unions up. Let's do a Ronald Reagan. Start busting these damn unions up. You really don't need them anymore. We've got so many laws on the books that protect the workers in the work environment and make sure the environment is safe that we don't need unions anymore. There was a purpose for them at one time, but not now. I would like to see Trump go after big tech, just like – Theodore Roosevelt went after Standard Oil because I think they're getting too too big for their britches, all of them. It goes hand in hand because look what Facebook and Twitter are doing. They're controlling the message. Heaven forbid you put on your post hydrochloroquine. Oh, good Lord, you, you have hydrochloroquine. You know, you're saying it's good. It helps people that have COVID. That's a fact. Medicine has been around for more than five decades. And we know if you give it to someone who has COVID in the early stages, not late stages, in the very early stages, at the very onset, that person has a higher chance of survivability, of even a quicker recovery. So why don't you put the truth out there? But that's not the political message. That's well, they're afraid thing. of the it's truth. Not... Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but... Uh, Looks like Karen is not going to be making it onto the show. Um, let's hope some of our guests show up today. Uh, I wanted to throw this past you, Curtis, uh, because with the rise of Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and uh, the embracing of communism by our progressive left, if you notice the incidents of violence 
not just in Seattle and Portland and New York and L.A. and places like that, um, but now it's surrounding the White House. The other day, there was the guy that approached a Secret Service, a uniformed Secret Service uh, member, just outside of the White House grounds and said, I've got a weapon on me, and then starts to menacingly walk towards or approach the Secret Service in a very menacing manner. Uh, we don't know if he actually had a weapon on him or not. They're not releasing that information just yet. But the Secret Service member turned around and says, oh, yeah? Well, you're not coming any further and shot him. So, you know, here you have it just outside the White House. Now, uh, the U.S. Air Force t- says that the white top helicopter uh, was shot. A UH-1N white top dignitary support helicopter from the first helicopter squadron at Joint Base Andrew in Washington, D.C. was shot at on, on Monday in nearby Virginia. And according to the Air Force, a crewman was injured and the helicopter was forced to make an emergency landing at Manassas Regional Airport in Virginia. And they're looking for whoever took a pot shot at the um, the White House helicopter. And this is the one they used yeah. to ferry dignitaries around. Yeah, I did hear of both incidents. And the first one, I didn't really get a lot of information. And I didn't know if this guy was tied to any group like, you know, Antifa or BLM. Um, And the second one, I would want anybody that's shooting at a military helicopters, some of these guys can shoot back. (laughs) They can launch missiles at you. So you better think twice about that. Now, I was was reading somewhere on the Internet, uh, one of the news articles, I don't remember if it was in the Daily Caller or Town Hall or one of those, um, that the Antifa, BLM, whatever that movement is that's morphing into whatever it is, there's a segment of it that wants to storm the White House. Catch this. The, the one building that in the United States has the most security around it being the White House, they want to storm it and occupy it. Uh, wait a minute. That White House is owned by we the people, the taxpayers. That's our house. You know, we already occupy it. So they want to occupy it physically. It, 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 does it make sense to you? you know, you've got sharpshooters up on the roof. What do you think is going to happen to that crowd if they attempt to storm the White House gates? What do you think is going to happen? Shot. I have no doubt they will be shot. I mean, they have better chances that um, Area 51. And I know they'll get shot there, too. <laughs> Let's let's bring on onto the show Karen Watson. She is the author of Being Black and Re- Republican in the Age of Obama. Gosh, how long ago was that, Karen? That you, you wrote that book and we had you on. Jesus, that was quite a while, and you're still going strong, girl. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Karen. I how that. are you? Yay, I'm great. How are y'all? Now we say all right. <laughs> Well, that's that. Texas for you. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I had someone the other day saying that I've been living in South Carolina so long that I'm starting to lose my New York dialect. <laughs> I'm sounding more Southern than New Yorker. So there's something about y'all doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now, I don't know if you caught the conversation we were just having where this, this arm of the Antifa Black Lives Matter movement wants to storm the White House and occupy it. How far do you think they're going to get? 
as far as they can. This is serious. I mean, I we this is. I mean, they're telling us what they really believe, and you know, my Angela said when people show you who they are, believe them, and this element of our country is we think it's hilarious because it's kind of so ridiculous but they're serious i mean they are serious they really are burning bibles they really are coming out to fight and destroy and we you know the most people just think okay this is not real no this is real and they are ready to fight. This is it's very sad, it's very disturbing, but we're here, unfortunately. Unfortunate it is because, you know, you have out in Seattle where they've got the Black Lives Matter movement, which if you look at the crowd, yeah. vast majority of them are privileged white kids going into Yeah, like 95% and- of them. Yeah. It, 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 it's it's absolutely absolutely amazing, and they're going into neighborhoods saying, um, "Give up your homes, turn your homes yes. over to us, give them to us." And they're shining lights in there. They're showing up on people's front yards and the front porches, and they're doing yeah. it to black people too. You know, <laughs> it's not about black. It's not about red. It's about power and control. They're coming in to take over. Thing about it. This is not just now we look at them think they're just pretty hippy dippy. No, this is a well funded movement. The this is deep deeply funded with billions of dollars. They are they have co opted the phrase black lives matter, but they don't care about black lives. They don't care about white lives, they don't care about brown lives, they care about power. And they will stomp over a black person to get power because one, the vast majority of the people ruling this and controlling this organization, they're not black. They don't care. I mean, that's why, I mean, I've been in Oregon. I I was lucky and blessed enough to be a keynote speaker at the Dorchester conference, which is the oldest conservative conference in the country in Oregon. And, I've been in Oregon, all up and down that beautiful state, but I can tell you now, less than three percent of that whole state is black. So how in the world, you know, is is this some kind of black movement? This is not a black movement. This is like call. You could might as well call it a orange movement. It's not about any of that. It's just about what do they need to do to push their agenda to take control, and they really are coming in. Weaponized. They really are coming in to destroy. They're not trying to build. They're trying to destroy. They can't. What happens when all the Confederate statues go down? What happens when all of the the names are removed? Black children are still hungry. Black people are still hurting. But that it was never about a solve for Black America. It was all how do we take advantage of of a narrative to get control. That's what it's always been about. Because if they wanted to do something for black people, they could. They could. We could start with Planned Parenthood, which is killing uh, more black children than anything else. Uh, But, you know, this was never about that. This was just some catchphrase, the deeply funded 
group. And George Soros just recently, not cumulatively, but just recently funded an additional $220 million into the Black Lives Matter because he is all about destroying this country. And this is what's going on. And, and and people are making donations to Black Lives Matter, but that money mm-hmm. is actually being funneled into the Joe Biden campaign, which people don't realize. Of course it is. Uh, of course it is. It, it, it's the only way he can raise money because he's got no campaign staff. He's not out there no. actively fundraising. He's not out there actively campaigning. He's relying on guilt of the white liberal yeah. to fund his campaign yeah. through Black Lives Matter. And it's all about guilt. How do you control a group by making the victims and the victimizers? So all of a sudden because you're born white, you're the victimizer. Yeah. Just by your accident of your birth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we I grew up under the mantra that you don't judge a person by the color of their skin. You judge, them, you judge them by the content of their character. See, the color of your skin, you don't get to choose. I didn't get to choose my color. I, I am a black American. I'm thankful. I, you know, I'm, I appreciate my color. I thank God for it. It was a gift from God. My character is what I choose. That is the main reason why you don't judge a person by the color. You don't choose white. You don't choose black. You, don't, you know, you don't choose it. And... On the flip side of that, you do choose your character. You do choose grace or or non-grace. You do choose love or not love. You do choose kindness or unkindness. You do choose gentleness or harshness. You do choose those things. But color, you don't choose color. So why would you judge somebody on something that they don't get to choose? And it is ridiculous. It is a complete fallacy to assume that a person is a certain way because of the color of their skin. Crazy. That's the main reason it's so ridiculous. That's the main reason that racism is so insane. But if you, there, of all the Ten Commandments, nothing says about because you're this, you're that way. But these are the things to not do regardless. And there's good and bad in all colors. I even have the term race because there is no such thing as a race. But there's good and bad in all of us. And that's where we need to focus. But this silliness of divide and what's in your melanin, and, and it's really going to trip up Biden's Kamala Harris campaign because it's it's got it all conflicted, you know. And when people say, well, Kamala Harris is not black, what they mean is not that she doesn't have melanin in her skin, even though her mother is from India. What they mean is that she's not lived my life as a black American. She hasn't lived a life grown up in the South or in a rural area or kind of dealing with those things. She, you know, there's a different experience that people are talking about. Well, that's not that's what people are saying. It's not just about how much melanin you have in your skin. It's like, hey, have you sat at, you know, grandmother's coffee table and talked about the freedom riders that came in at night and took the grandfather? You know, those are the stories that you overhear. Or sat in the pew of a church and someone telling you 
these things in a in kind of a covert way because churches were the places where black people could congregate and praise our God who was and still is our only Savior. And those are the stories. It's not just whether you eat black chicken. You know, it's it's a light experience that people get unique to and that's what they mean. Which is not like, okay, well she's three shades darker than somebody else. That's not what they but, you know, you can't try to use optics for one side but not deal with it completely on the other side. And, and it, it's just it's ridiculous. I mean, we've gotten caught up in, in, in the fallacies of identity, and it's, it's going to come back to bite them. But beyond the, these weird racial issues is that we are hurting as a country. And to play in that field and that game is so dangerous. And what we need to do is start healing as a country. And now we're hearing that Biden wants to have mandates on masks. You think that's where the mandates stop? We're going to have the government. I hate how people have just so given over to the government. We are supposed to be liberty. And, you know, I don't care. If we are supposed to be a nation of liberty. Now we're a nation of rules and laws. I'm smarter than you in a nanny state. Whatever. That's not that's not what we're about, and it's going to be an important election, and I am hoping that people have their eyes open, their ears open, and that they are voting based off of what makes the most sense, and I really do still believe and am proudly uh, supporting and endorsing 100% totally Trump. You know- well, I, I was looking at some of the statistics coming in from the voting block that they call black Americans. Uh-huh. And we're finding that those that are under the age of 35 and voting age are becoming highly disenfranchised with the Democratic Party. And they're more likely to vote either independent or Republican. So I think that yeah. the Democratic Party finally shot themselves in the foot enough where they've taken the best voting block they have and just turned it around. I think so, but messaging is going to be very, very tricky, and it has to be done. And that's why I'm also so proudly associated with New Journey PAC, which is uh, the founder of that uh, PAC, James Golden and Archie Pruitt. And I encourage everybody to get connected to that and, and support and, you know, what the amazing things that they're doing at New Journey because messaging is it's not just the message, but it's the messaging. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. we have to make sure that we are on message and messaging, and New Journey does that impeccably well. And I do think we are at a time where people are really getting tired of being told, you're not black if you don't vote for me. When a white man would tell another black person, they lose all of their black cards because they choose to not vote for them, that is an insult at the highest level. And it's like my the only thing that defines me is whether I vote for Biden. That is insulting. That is highly insulting. And I think people are getting sick and tired of it. And, you know, they're pushing this narrative again, which is what they're, you know, what they do best is push racial narratives, but I agree with you. I was coming out of a store just yesterday with my Trump bumper sticker on, 
And the security guard, true story, the security guard is motioning me to come back from, you know, as I was driving away. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what, did something happen? Did I leave something in the store? And he wanted to confirm that I placed the bumper sticker on the back of my car. Mm. It was your car. I'm like, yes, did you put that bumper sticker on there? And I said, well, yes, I strongly support Trump. And he said, I do too, but I are getting a, there are a lot of people who, who, who forget what the mainstream media says. They're looking at what's real for them in their lives. And they're like, you know what? You can say whatever you want, but I really like Trump. Uh, you know, they, the media can label him as whatever, but I really like him. I really am conservative. I really do believe in the values of that party. And, you know, this heavy taxation, we get to tell people what to do. We're so much smarter than somebody else. Where did we come up with that? That is the most un-American thing I've ever heard. You don't get politicians to rule over you. We vote for politicians to work for us, to represent us, not to tell us, oh, I'm so smart, you need to wear a mask. No, I'm smart, okay? The citizens of this country are smart. Guess what that means? That we can govern ourselves, we the people. Just because we vote for someone into office doesn't mean that they rule over us. They represent us, and that's a different different dynamic. And this, these mandates, that's ruling over. That's not a, a politician doesn't rule over. What they do is they represent. And we've got to make sure that they understand that when we vote them into office. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, it's almost like a kingdom. We do this. We do this. We're so, I mean, where do they come from that they're so much smarter? Are they smarter than the average citizen? Are they better than the average citizen? Are they more moral than the average citizen? Absolutely not. And yet they are dictating to us, you know, give me a freaking break. We have got to remember that in America we're free. And they've got to understand that as well. You know, get get off your high horse. We don't have a king in this country. We don't have a queen in this country. We have, this is a citizen-ran country. And even though people have forgotten our constitutional rights, we need to start educating them on those rights so that we can save our nation. Because the mandates, guess what, won't stop at the mass. The mandates won't stop. Then they're, you know, it'll keep going further and further and further. And, and they just remove all your sense of decency and respect and, and identity. And, and it's scary. It's, very, it's a very scary climate. Well, Karen Watson, I want to have you hang on the line because we also have our, our other guest in on the line, Dr. Uh, Mike Bustler. And Curtis, I had him in. Don't, don't do that to me, Curtis. <laughs> Let's bring Curtis back on. Uh, Mike, how are I'm you back. today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, uh, we've got Karen Watson with us and uh, Mike Busler. Uh, what we're finding is is that there's an undercurrent throughout the rest of the United States when we watch the insanity that's going on in Portland and Seattle and mm. New York and California. Um, mainstream America, the heartland of America, the silent majority is starting to get really upset, and they're starting to come out of the woodwork. Um, what are you seeing, Mike? 
<clears throat> well, uh, you know, the whole thing was supposed to be started. Uh, you recall it started in Seattle with uh, what the mayor called, I believe, a summer of love. And she thought it would just be uh, some nice uh, pe- people demonstrating. Of course, what happened is it got taken over by some very radical people who really are not concerned with uh, any kind of social justice cause. They really just want to tear the system apart and loot wherever they can. Um, So I think the uh, liberal mayors sort of went along with this in the beginning, but it's getting to the point now. I think Portland's 70-some days of uh, straight riding every night. Um, It's going against uh, some of the federal buildings, which is why the president sent some people in there to take care of that. And I agree. I think the the public is really getting sick of this. Uh, I know in New York City, um, they're having all kinds of problems there, but they too are having a a crime issue. Um, And all the crime statistics show that things like murders and uh, robberies and other serious crime is up significantly uh, over last year. And people are starting to leave New York. So I think the liberal mayors of these cities have got to realize that these are not peaceful protesters. Um, and if they want to maintain their, the vitality of their cities, they're going to have to do something to stop it and stop it fairly quickly. I think yesterday, President Trump uh, launched that uh, legend progress, uh, project named after that young child that was uh, killed. And he's going to uh, essentially send troops in as long as the mayors and governors will allow it They'll send troops in and uh, clean this up. This is going to turn out to be a positive, I think, for Trump come election time. Um, People are starting to get fed up now. They'll be even more fed up the longer this goes. President Trump runs as a law and order uh, candidate, law and order president. And I think people will be uh, yearning for that come election time. Well, Karen, I'm seeing some pushback because we're seeing some horrific killings coming out of this Black Lives Matter movement. And most recently, a five-year-old little white boy in front of his home, in front of his two little sisters, a neighbor, a black guy, who had spent a couple of days before having dinner with this very same family. This guy, little kid is riding his bike in in his front yard, a couple of doors down from this other gentleman. I I shouldn't even call him a gentleman because he's a, he's a a murderer. He's an animal comes down the street to a five-year-old and executes him point blank. Meanwhile, just a couple of days before he broke bread with the family in their home. It's a senseless killing. Mm. And yet leadership in the black lives matter Taps this guy as a hero. Meanwhile, now you've got two families completely destroyed. The family of the killer, because now they have to live this down for the rest of their lives. And the family that lost this innocent little boy who had nothing to do with reparations or slavery or whatever this movement's supposed to be about. He's an innocent little five-year-old. Your heart breaks. Karen? I mean, my heart... Yeah. yeah, My heart breaks. And in this is not the end, but the beginning, which is why we have got to be more engaged than we were before. It's, it's so, I mean, my, my heart just breaks for this decision. And, you know, we always assume that our country will be here. No, we don't need to just pretend that it's going to just, everything is going to be okay. This is a very active, engaged group that is bent on destroying 
this country. And that's not hyperbole that I'm using. I mean, they are truly ready to, they have said it. We will burn it down. We will destroy this country. They have said it. So why do we pretend they don't mean it? And and what they want to, you know, they don't have, they don't have goodwill for any of us. Black, brown, red, white, none of us. This is, uh, it's just an evil manifestation. But I still believe, I still believe that we can win. But we've got to be engaged because they don't represent the majority. They represent a very small, you know, faction of who we are as a nation. Most Americans don't think that way. Most most people don't live out like that. They're not. That doesn't represent 4% of us. But they are the loudest. They're the most destructive. But but they are serious. And we just have to start, we have to start fighting. We are in the fight. We just have to start fighting. What's the economic impact that we have now with these riotings and with the pandemic? Um, are yeah. we safe or are we going to be looking for a huge crash? Well, uh, so... Overall, uh, in spite of what everybody is saying, the economy actually is doing very well now. Now, why do I say that? So, again, looking at the big picture for a minute, January and February started out exceptionally well. Then we shut the country down in mid-March. And because we did that, the decline in output in mid-March was so great that the whole first quarter turned out to have negative growth, negative 5%. Then we were shut down for the entire month of April. And um, then, though, in May and June, now we don't get monthly figures, but in May and June, it looks like the economy and July really started to come back very strongly. Why do I say that? Um, Normally, um, so we look for some numbers that will try to tell us about economic growth since the government doesn't report those numbers monthly, only quarterly. But if you take a look at um, the number of uh, uh, jobs that were created, you can get an idea of how quickly the economy is coming back. So in an average month, we create maybe 200,000 jobs. Uh, the best we did during the recovery from the 0809 recession was about 400 and some thousand in, in one month. In the month of May, we created 2.8 million jobs. That indicates the economy is coming back very strongly. Retail sales, which is the bulk of consumption, retail sales increased nearly 18% in the month of May. So the economy started back strongly. In June, 4.6 million jobs were added, nearly doubled the uh, uh, number from May, which was a record. Retail sales increased by 8%. Um, So uh, then in in July, um, we created another 1.8 million jobs. Again, that's except with the exception of May and June, that's the best month we we've we've ever had broke the uh, record. So July is increasing retail sales for July just came out. They went up 1.2 percent now, much lower than before, but it's still a a fairly substantial number in a typical month. Retail sales go up two, three tenths of a percent. This um, went up the uh, 1.2 uh, 
5%. And what it means now is retail sales are about at the level they were prior to the um, pandemic hitting. So although things are still uh, not good yet, we still have 10% unemployment and there's all kinds of problems, we do have a V-shaped recovery and the economy is coming back strongly. Now, having said that, some of the things that are holding back the recovery is uh, this virus has flared up again, although it looks like it peaked in the end of July and starting to go back down again, at least the number of cases. Um, and some businesses ended up uh, shutting down again in July. But even with that, we had positive numbers on employment, again, indicating that we're coming back strong. Now, so that's the big picture. Looking at it on kind of a micro level, there are some small businesses that are never going to recover from from this. They don't have deep pockets. They may have gotten some of the PPP money. Maybe they, they didn't. Uh, some are going to have a difficult time recovering. And in major cities, the looters went in and destroyed so many of these uh, stores that not only do they, they have to fight the pandemic, but you also have to fight the fact your inventory just got wiped out by these looters. That, too, will tend to slow down the recovery. I'm hoping that President Trump just at some point says we're not going to take it anymore at all, even though the mayors and the governors don't want us there. We have an obligation to make sure our cities and their, the state is uh, safe. And if the local officials can't do it, perhaps the federal government has to step in. Now, politically, that's a very difficult thing, but I don't think he's going to allow this uh, much longer. The longer it goes on and the more people are afraid to walk in the street and businesses are afraid to reopen, the more it's going to slow down the recovery, which otherwise, as I said, would be very um, robust. Well, Karen, you know, we've seen in Chicago where they actually had to take the drawbridges up and close down roads to isolate downtown Chicago. And you had the Black Lives Matter movement going looting the very same stores they had recently looted. These people got the stores back open, got the jobs open again, and they hit them a second time. Is this going to drive more voters into the Trump camp? Or do you think these neighborhoods will ever recover? Because a lot of them don't have the insurance. They're not covered by insurance for this stuff. Well, not only are they not covered for insurance, but they're also losing valuations, which is another um, – if, if, for example, if you have a storefront, a retail storefront, and it's been, you know, it's battering graffiti and trash and, and you know, the reason, and then you decide, you know what, I'm going to sell this and get out of this, move to the country. You can't sell it because no one wants to buy it. And so you've got property devaluations going on because of the rioting. You know what I'm saying? And that, which affects insurance and affects a whole lot of other things. So it's just bad. It is just bad, 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 bad. I did a story um, a couple of years ago, the effects of riots. And if you go through where they have major riots and, and how it just property values, which is um, hurts wealth because most people's wealth is built in the property that they have, whether it's residential or commercial. And if you look at some of those places that had heavy rioting, then you go back, take, for example, Ferguson, when I did, which is the, which kind of led me to think, like, what does the effect of 
the Ferguson riots have on the property values. And I think at the time when I did that study, pre the Ferguson riot, I think the average home might have been like 98000 I'm not looking at the report now, but like it been 98000 somewhere around that. It was kind of like an, an older suburb, you know, that kind of thing. And then immediately after the riot, so the the values just plummet. I mean, so it went down by over 60%. I mean, a ridiculous amount. Same thing you follow in the center in Watts and in, in Jersey, you know, and Newark. All these heavy riding areas just destroy property values. So that takes a while to recover. And it, so it's, yes, it's good that the jobs are there, but the, but the amount of, of wealth that is lost because of the rioting is is humongous and usually takes years and years to replace. So what we've got to do is stop this. Like how many people are begging to be in, in Seattle? You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, money mm-hmm. goes where it's invited. People, if you can't sell something, guess what? Then you're going to drop the value of that property, residential or commercial, so you get to some kind of sellable market there. There are houses in Detroit that you could buy for a dime, not no, but basically what the real value is because no, you don't have the desire to be there, to place in those areas that have been, that have, and it invites in crime. So the crime goes up. I mean, look at what's happening in Chicago. As you mentioned in New York, I think they, from what I remember, that what they're saying is that there are more murders in New York now, just up to date, than there were in all of last year. And then you have these pushes to defund the police. Well, how much sense does that make? You know, I mean, no one likes bad cops. I get it. Bad cops are bad news. But not every cop is a bad cop. And most of the cops are not bad cops. And just so just defund the whole thing, that's crazy. That's just like saying, well, there are bad doctors, and there are bad doctors. Let's just get rid of all the medical school. Okay. What? Well, people still get sick. Well, no. There are bad doctors, so let's just get rid of medical school. There are bad lawyers, so let's get a law school. No one said that yet. But, you know, but it's, it's not. It's non sequitur. So why are we getting caught up in the silliness? Because we are being swayed by the emotions that are not really connected to what's really going on. And I think that you're right. President Trump needs to just boldly come in and say, "Enough, we're gonna, we are Americans. This is not who we are. We don't. It's gonna, you know, we cannot allow this silliness to continue. And then, not just the property, because I'm not saying that property is not important, but a trillion times more than the value of property, the, the values of human life, and." The death, the carnage, the abuse that's going on right now because of this, it's just can we recover from this? So we have to have a sense of law and order to protect not just property, but also lives, which is vastly more important and more valuable. 
Well, my my co-host has a question for you, but I want to make I want to make an observation because having been a cop in New York City, getting there after the riots of the seventies, you know, decades later, those neighborhoods were still devastated. Buildings were still boarded up. But there's also a snowball effect in this, Mike, where it's not just the property values drop, but the actually revenue that goes into the city to fund programs and services drops also. So it affects Absolutely. not just a little tiny neighborhood, but it affects the entire city and possibly state. Is that correct? I'll tell you, I would uh, I would agree with that. And uh, New York City uh, and many of those major cities are exp- gonna go, going to experience some major changes. So what people are, are saying now, people that live in cities like New York, is, look, I pay a high premium to live here. It's very expensive. To, to live here. The taxes are ridiculously high here, but I do that because I had a nice lifestyle, plenty of cultural events, plenty of things to do in New York City. It was always a vibrant city uh, culturally, always had a lot of tourism. Um, big companies are located there. Uh, so what's changing now is people with this pandemic hitting and everybody or so many people having to work from home they realize that maybe we don't need to be in an office. Maybe we can do a lot of work remotely. So I think that's going to reduce the demand for people to be in the cities. Um, secondly, uh, as you mentioned, with all of the uh, uh, crime problems that they're having and the safety issues, people don't don't want to be there. And since they don't have to be there for work, there's really no reason to be there. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of people leaving New York City, and uh, as Karen correctly pointed out, uh, what that'll do is drive uh, real estate prices down. These people are moving out to the um, suburbs, and if you take a look just in the last month or two, what's happened to real estate prices in uh, parts of northern New Jersey, Connecticut, and even uh, New York State outside of New York City, those values are going up significantly um, because the people are leaving and there's an increase in demand in those uh, areas. I've heard issues, uh, instances where people have bought houses without even seeing them, uh, just because they didn't. They wanted to do it before the price went up, and they're so anxious to get out of the city. I'm really worried about the long-term viability of cities like New York. I'm from Philadelphia originally, um, and they never had a problem. At least I can't remember a very serious problem with crime. I went to college in. Um, Philadelphia, and, you know, maybe there was a, a couple of uh, murders a year, certainly not not very very many. Now Philadelphia is second only to Chicago this year in the number of people killed. Uh, so that's going to drive people out of the, the cities, and since they can find that many of them that we can work remotely, uh, that's going to continue to uh, change the way that people live and, and work. It's going to see people moving away from cities, uh, and into the suburbs, and I think that trend will continue. And uh, you make another very good point that there were riots back in the 70s, and it's taken decades uh, for some of that to get repaired, and I'm afraid that's, that's what's going to happen here. Well, Curtis, go ahead. I know, which is why we have to take this these emergency um, measures that we don't allow the left to go as loony as they want to go. 
it has to be responsibility um, responsibility for their actions. Curtis, you had a question for Mike. Yeah, I certainly do. It's more on the economic side of things. Okay. I I'm, I invest in silver, and as you know, silver and gold has been going up sky high. <clears throat> Excuse yep. me. Now, what's going to happen? You think with um, precious metals? if Donald Trump wins versus Joe Biden, because a lot of people don't have confidence in the dollar right now. And I believe that's what's behind the push in the precious metals market. So usually uh, precious metals like gold and silver prices move in opposite directions to the stock market, to stock prices. And the reason is when the economy is doing very well and people have a lot of confidence and companies are making uh, good profits, Stock prices are going to go up. People will get out of gold because they feel confident in, in the economy and get into stocks because the price, stock prices are going up. That reduces the demand for gold, and gold prices go down. On the other hand, if you think the economy is about to, to tank and corporations are going to start losing a lot of money, you say, let me get out of the stock market because prices are going to fall. Let me get into the gold market. That increases the demand for gold and drives gold prices up. So historically, gold and the stock market move in opposite directions. Now, that's not happening today. Today, both the stock market and gold are both going up. So uh, what's going to happen going forward? It depends on what the economy does in the next couple months. And as Curtis correctly points out, it depends what happens uh, in the election and who wins the presidency. So if you take a look at the recession in 08 and 09, it took more than four years for the economy to get back to where it was before using policies that Obama and Biden put into place. If you take a look at this recession, which was very deep and very short, I would estimate, at least looking at the number of people working, sometime by the end of next year, you'll, we'll probably get back to about where we were before, assuming President Trump wins the um, election. So uh, already President Trump has shown in the last three months, I spoke about before, a very sharp recovery to this recession. So President Trump knows that um, less regulations, lower taxation, and low interest rates will stimulate economic growth. President, uh, if Biden wins the presidency, he feels that government regulation should be increased, tax rates should be uh, increased, and eventually he's going to end up driving up uh, interest rates that will tend, all tend to slow the economy. So as long as President Trump wins uh, and continues the policies that he's already put in and he's trying to put in more, uh, we'll have a very robust recovery. And President Trump has said, and I agree with him, next year we could see the highest growth rate we've seen in decades. We haven't seen a 3% annual growth rate since the year 2005. We haven't seen a 4% annual growth rate since the year 2000. President Trump believes that the recovery using his policies will be very strong next year, and we could see a 4% or better growth rate next year, which would be the best year we've had in, in two decades. Uh, if, if that happens and the economy improves, 
and the stock market continues to go up, you'll see people moving out of gold and into stocks. That should tend to bring the price down, if a uh, price of gold down. If, on the other hand, President uh, uh, Joe Biden wins and does what he's going to do, and the economy is very slow to recover and starts to stagnate, the, the corporate profits will stagnate. So. Stock prices will stagnate, so people will get out of stocks, they're not making any money, move into gold where they feel safer, and that will drive gold prices up. So the um, strength of the recovery and who wins the election will determine what happens to both stock prices and gold and silver. I will say I think silver is still a little, even though it's had a pretty good run-up, I still think it's a little bit underpriced. It's much below its record levels and silver is needed for a lot of electronics products. So I think longer term, uh, silver still looks to be a good buy. Gold fluctuates with a lot of things. Um, much of it has to do with people's emotion. So I'm always a little nervous when people ask me what's going to happen with gold prices. <laughs> but that's essentially what I see. Well, I appreciate well, your, your answer. Well, Thank Curtis, you. like you, my husband and I started buying silver a few years back. And I, I was getting it around $18 an ounce. And I understand now it's like $20 up an ounce. Uh, so I, I pulled it out the other day and I said, well, how many of these do I have? And I said, wow, I've actually tripled what I, I've invested. So I, I think, Mike, uh, your idea that Trump is going to have gold and silver continue to rise with the stock market, I think that's interesting. Yeah, again, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. There's a lot of variables here. Uh, not just economic, but political. Uh, look, they're talking about another stimulus plan. Personally, I don't favor any more stimulus, and the reason is very simple. Uh, we had a, we would have had a $1 trillion deficit this year before the virus hit. We spent $3 trillion more of money we don't have, so now the deficit is going to be $4 trillion this year, and they're talking about spending some more money that that we don't have. At some point, we're going to have to address that, and the huge public debt, which is approaching $30 trillion, we're going to have to uh, deal, deal with that too. Now, I don't know how soon we're going to take a look at that, and I'm not sure um, what's going to be done to fix it. President Trump will not raise taxes, period. He will not raise taxes. So the only other way to get rid of the deficit is to cut, on, cut down government spending, and because 60% of the budget uh, goes to entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, and about 10% of the spending goes to pay interest on the public debt. Uh, that means there's really only about 30% of the budget where we have much that, that we can uh, try to do. So getting spending down will be very difficult, but somehow we're going to have to confront this problem and come up with a solution the solution that they do come, come up with, depending on what it is, uh, will impact how the economy moves forward. Now, Biden is elected. He'll solve the deficit problem by raising corporate taxes. He's already said that. By raising taxes on the wealthy and by raising taxes on the middle class. He believes that if you can continue to raise tax rates, you'll bring in more tax revenue. That's not always the case. There are some times when lower rates actually bring in more money and uh, higher rates would bring in less money. Now, why is that? 
The higher rates will slow down economic activity. Therefore, you have less income that you're taxing. So you have a high rate, but against a smaller amount of income, as opposed to what President Trump and Congress did in 2017. They cut the tax rates in 2018. The economy expanded. Even though the rate was lower, we had more income to tax. So we collected more revenue in 2018 than we did in 2017. We also collected more revenue in 2019 than we did in 2018. So the lower rates actually led to more revenue. Biden's approach will be to raise the tax rates, hope revenue goes up. But by raising the tax rates, particularly on corporations and the wealthy, you destroy capital formation. And when there's less capital going into the economy, we have a capital-intensive economy. With less capital going in, it's going to slow economic growth. So I have to see what happens, again, economically and politically before we can make any assessments uh, what's going to happen going forward. Well, um, there's, there's, I don't know if this is going to pass. I doubt it, but it's a possibility. But what they're talking about now is this payroll protection plan that they had out there for small businesses. It was given to the businesses as a grant that will be forgiven. So it should, doesn't have right. to get paid back. Now they're proposing right. legislation that will mandate these, the, these grants are now converted into loans and must be paid back. That's going to destroy a large section of small businesses, wouldn't it? And which is our largest exactly. employer in the United States. Exactly. And I don't think uh, even if both houses of Congress Past that, the president, I would assume, would veto that, and I don't think they'll be able to um, override the, the veto. So I don't uh, see that happening. The idea, they went to business and they said, look, it's not your fault the economy shut down. I understand that. We'll lend you enough money to keep all of your workers going and to pay your bills for three months, and by that time the economy will start to uh, grow. If you agree not to lay anybody off, will turn the loan into a, a grant. Uh, and many businesses did that, and it kept people working. Uh, even when there wasn't enough business to employ everybody, they still kept people working, and they had them doing some, some other things. So I can't imagine them changing the rules now. Um, it, 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 you're, you're right, too. It would be a, a very disastrous effect on a small business, and the vast majority, as you point out, the vast majority of new jobs are created by a small business. A number of small businesses are going to go under anyway for the riots and the uh, uh, just the length of the uh, pandemic, but um, we want to keep as many of small businesses as going as possible, and we want to create an environment where if people did go out of business, that perhaps they can come back and start another business and get the economy uh, back and growing again. Well, you know, basically when they took these loans out, which were converted into grants, uh, that's a contract. So you have an individual or business entering into a contract with government. So if government reneges on that contract, wouldn't it be a breach of contract? I would certainly think so. That's uh, another reason why I don't, uh, that will go through. Um, it would hurt the economy, and you're right. They took out the, the loan, they signed a, a contract, and now you're reneging on the contract, and you can't do that. It would be a ton of lawsuits uh, coming from that. So I really can't see that happening. Yeah, I, I definitely. I agree with that. You know, um, 
there's so much more to talk about, and I don't even know where my mind is going on this one. Curtis, bail me out. <laughs> Did I lose my co-host? Curtis. No, I'm still here. I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, as as we have seen campuses closed all around the United States, what mm. economic impact and perhaps psychological impact this is going to have on students who love to gather, you know, especially those that around that age group with, you know, having no schools or no campuses to go to and no social life, basically. Yeah. I'm I'm more worried about the younger students than the, the older students. I think the older students, particularly in, in college, they, they've already taken some classes online, um, after spring break um, in, in mid-March, they, the whole school, my school, and most other schools went completely online and stayed online in, in the summer. Uh, most schools uh, will remain online in the, in the fall. Again, I think college students can, can handle that. Uh, personally, um, in spite of what studies may say, um, I don't think you get near the educational experience online that you do uh, face-to-face in, in, in class. I mean, it's, I, can, I can teach things, so I can lecture, and you can get the same things, but there's active learning and interaction that occurs in the, the classroom that I don't plan for. Somebody asks a question, it starts uh, somebody else thinking about something else, and while I'm speaking about a specific topic, they say, well, in the real world, this, this, and this happened. So now we start talking about that, and there's real active learning that occurs. And I think the students are being shortchanged. Maybe they have to be, but I think they're being shortchanged by this completely online. My biggest fear is younger people. Young people need to socialize with, with each other. And the fact that uh, they couldn't do that, uh, most schools uh, shut down or went online from mid-March on, they couldn't do that. Uh, they couldn't interact with their friends in the in the summer because we were still very uh, hesitant to do that. And if they can't do that in the fall, I'm afraid that there will be some uh, psychological issues. I mean, already we've seen uh, things like, even with younger people, uh, depression, anxiety, even suicide exactly. are, are going up. And we can't afford to to have that. I think the, the younger people, and I certainly don't want to see anybody die from this disease, but... I think the younger people uh, can handle this much better. I heard a statistic the other day that uh, said the total number of people under 18 that have died as a result of the coronavirus is only 15 people. (laughs) So while we've lost 160,000, that's a real tragedy. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Losing one is um, a tragedy. It appears that younger people handle this disease uh, very well. Um, on the other hand, I know it's a very difficult decision for a parent to make to decide whether to send their child to school or not, e- even if they have that that option. But I'm hoping, you know, President Trump keeps saying, look, the therapeutics are only a short time away. So I'm hoping that sometime in September we get some therapeutics that are approved and ready to go onto the market. So if somebody does get sick they can, from the virus, they can uh, heal relatively quickly. What I'm more optimistic about is uh, some of the vaccines that are in the uh, third stage. I expect at least one of them, and maybe as many as three or four, uh, to have 
all of their um, research done and their application into the FDA uh, for final approval. The FDA is going to uh, get these things through relatively quickly. So I think that sometime in September or October, we'll have a commercially available vaccine. Now, President Trump took a tremendous risk. He said there are three or four vaccines that in early trials were extremely effective, and the companies say we're very confident that we're going to make it through all the trials and we're going to get approved. So President Trump took a gamble. He said rather than wait for you to get approved in September, October, and then take three or four months to ramp up production, I'm going to order the uh, drugs now, start ramping up production. So once they get approved in September, we'll already have millions of doses available, and maybe by November or December we can get them into the hands of um, the people. And once they have the vacuum, uh, the vaccines rather try to return to normal as soon as we can after after the first of the year. But it's critical we get people back to work, we get students back to, to school, and we try to get our lives as close back to normal as possible as early as we can. Well, Karen, I, I wanted to ask you about this, the education of our, our kids, um, because there are so many more things, not just the interaction between instructor and students, but students, mm-hmm. their growth as individuals and learning social norms, you know, facial expressions, body language, how to interact in a polite society. There's so many things these kids, they're in a developmental stage that is so imperative that they are socializing. Um, Are we going to see larger problems down the road because these kids have been denied this block of time? Unfortunately so. Unfortunately so, and I think we need to start working on how to socialize these, all of us again. And, um, but I do believe in the power of everyone's own fortitude. I mean, sometimes if you just kind of let things alone, they kind of tend to go back to uh, a normal way of being. You know what I'm saying? If you kind of look at even when people experience trauma and then you kind of let them get back to a a sense of normalcy, people tend to be, they kind of get there. I mean, if you study Holocaust survivors, if you study the, the, the stories of what happened to black Americans right after slavery ended, you know, it's eventually, I mean, there are effects that are long term, but it, they kind of wane with the time, if allowed to. So there are going to be some deep fissures that are happening, but I think that that we'll be we can heal from this once we start the healing process. But the thing is to start the healing process, which we haven't been allowed to do right now. As an aunt of an 11-year-old nephew, who I had to help during this homeschool nonsense. I can tell you that he was not learning anything. And, you know, they were just kind of giving him busy work. And at at his age, he didn't fully understand. It kind of ended up being just like a long-term spring break because it happened right around spring break, and then school kind of never got started again. But, you know, you're talking about the ages that these children are, and I agree. They don't, they don't 
we haven't processed this well. Uh, I hope that we'll get out of this quickly so we'll have less trauma to deal with, but most kids have not processed this. Most adults have not processed this well. And the increase in suicides is a real thing. I heard in California that the suicide rate has gone up like more so than the coronavirus or COVID-19 infection rates are. So there, it creates bigger problems by not uh, addressing this in a different way. Well, it's important because we use our schools at this point in time um, to also look for things like child abuse, um, yes. mental illness. Uh, also, it's a meal ticket. You know, uh, if you are someone on food stamps or something like that, you may not be getting full nutrition at home. So it offers full nutrition. Uh, but there's so many other things the schools do that they also often are the first ones to see a problem with the child. That's exactly and, right. And Most pediatric referrals come from the schools. You know, I didn't realize that till I was doing work with the United Way, but that mo- the vast majority of CPS, Child Protective Services referrals, come directly from the school. And it's because that they're around the kids, and they've also been trained to notice when the kid doesn't have reasonable hygiene, when the child has marks on them. You know what I'm saying? That you may not see through your church or during your neighborhood because you're not paying, paying close attention to the kids in that manner. And so, and then rates of child abuse have increased. So in my area, Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, they're the children who who have unfortunately died from child abuse has uh, drastically gone up. So, uh, you know, we've got to look at the whole picture of what's really going on in this country and how well, we're Mike, responding with, to this pandemic. Well, Mike, you deal with young adults, basically. But when yeah. we're dealing with children, their attention span is not there. And as Karen was saying, they don't completely comprehend what is going on. So is there an economic impact that we're going to see because of this? There is not so much in the short term, but in the longer term. Um, So what we're doing is uh, essentially um, not giving these young young, uh, children the education that they're supposed to get. So they're going to fall behind. Now, um, what kind of an economic impact will will that have? Will they have to repeat a grade? Uh, That could be a possibility. Or will they just continue going through and uh, have not quite as strong a foundation for further education that they they should have? Uh, In which case, that's going to have a a negative uh, impact. They're going to have a tough time uh, after they graduate from high school. Um, They may have a tougher time getting into the colleges they want to get into. so we, we really need, for all the reasons that were just discussed here, we, we really need to get these kids back in school as soon as possible. Now, of course, we want to do it safely, and there are ways to, to uh, do that. But we really need to get them where they're interacting with the teacher face-to-face. They're interacting with the other students. And uh, as Karen mentioned, uh, schools do a lot more than just uh, teach today. <clears throat> there are students that get two meals at school because at home they have very difficult conditions and uh, they're not always fed properly. So when you get to school, you, they, you know, they're getting at least two, 
good meals. Also, there's some things that are picked up in schools that um, wouldn't be picked up anywhere else. <clears throat> I know when when I was in fourth grade, uh, you know, my parents thought everything was fine. And the teacher said, listen, you're having trouble seeing the, the board. I can tell by what you're saying, you're, you're not seeing the board properly. So before this gets in to be a major problem, get your eyes checked, which I did. It turned out I needed glasses. So had I not been in school, I don't know if my parents would have ever picked that up. And as a result, right. I would have gone through school not being able to really see the board, and I would have had some problems. So schools provide a lot more than just education, and it's important that we get students back as quickly and as safely as possible. So we need to figure out a way to try to, to try to do that. Keeping the students home like this is just it's just not good for their mental health. It's even not good for their physical health. So they we really need to get them back in school as soon as possible. And as we all agree here, it's the younger people <clears throat> that are really going to suffer the most from this. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because when I was in junior high school, um, one of the teachers understood finally why I was having some trouble in classes. I mean, I was acing tests and everything else, um, but I had a stuttering problem, which sometimes comes, of course, on the radio. But they sent me to speech therapy to help me conquer that. Uh, so it's amazing all the different little things the schools do provide. You know, I don't know if I would be doing a radio show if I had not had a teacher recognize the fact I had a stuttering problem. It's interesting. I'll tell you, Carol, I was going to say it's very interesting. I, too, had a, a fairly severe stuttering problem. Now, it didn't show up so much at home, I guess, because I felt comfortable and I could say things. But when I got out in front of people, um, I had a pretty severe stuttering problem. And you're right. I was able to get a little bit of uh, speech therapy uh, in school, and it helped me get over it. I, too, still uh, wonder, am I ever going to start stuttering again? So far, I've been able to uh, keep it under control, but I, I don't know that I would have been a, a, a college professor lecturing um, in front of all those students uh, if I still had that stuttering problem. So I agree that it's very important that we get the students back. There's all kinds of benefits other than just education that they get in school. We got to get them back as soon as possible. You know, I, I'm also thinking about another area of our economy, the sports. I mean, you have so uh, many kids coming out of high school and college that want to go and become pros. You know, how much of their livelihood is being taken away from them because they're not able to play the sports or compete and, and show a record and then being able to be um, – I'm trying to think of the proper word. There goes my brain fart – um, scouted. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and that's, that's a great point. That's a huge part um, of our economy, sports. Absolutely. Um, and it's affecting uh, the future of high school athletes. Um, all three of my children were athletes in, in high school, and uh, they ended up uh, being athletes in, in college, too. Um, and being athletic um, also makes you more appealing to uh, some of these schools. Um, my daughter went to an Ivy League school. I mean, she's very intelligent. She did well in all her exams and did very well in her SATs and uh, was high ranking in class. But when she was uh, applying, there were five other girls that did just as well as she did. So the question is, you have to have something that gives you a little bit of an edge over some of those 
uh, other girls if you ex- uh, expect to get in. So she was a, an all-star field hockey player, and they recruited her to play field hockey in, in college. I'm not sure she would have gotten in if it wasn't for the uh, the uh, field hockey. Uh, and there's these some of these students. Um, my two boys played f- football. We started playing football when they were eight years old in the junior county leagues. They played all through high school, and their dream was to play in in college. Now you have high school seniors are not going to have a season this fall, at least in New Jersey. They're not going to have a season, um, so they're going to have a difficult time uh, being recruited by uh, college coaches. That's going to have a negative impact on their their uh, future. And how about some of the uh, students that went to college is to, to learn, obviously, but also to play uh, football. Now they've canceled the fall season. Uh, they're going to end up missing out uh, too, and they've worked their entire lives to get to the point where they can play college uh, sports. Look, 90% of the student of the college athletes know they're not going to go any further. So it, it's the college is, is what they built up for, college athletics. And by taking that away, you're taking away what these people have worked their most of their lives for, and it's, it's, uh, it's really a sad thing. On an economic uh, point, um, professional and college sports generates, particularly professional, generates huge amounts of revenue. Look, even if they uh, have the season but they don't allow any people uh, in the stadium, well, all the businesses that rely on people going to the stadium, the, the food around there, the vendors that are in the stadium – they're all going to not be able to have any work, and that's a, you know, a negative on the uh, economy. I'd like to see sports opened up as soon as possible, too, and I'd like things to be as safe as they have to be, and I understand that safety is most important. But we have to figure out a way to work around this by keeping the safety and still allow people to get as close to a normal lifestyle, return to as close a normal lifestyle as possible, really as quickly as we can do that. But I think we also have to be cognizant, just like they would always say when I was working in the banking uh, world, is that you cannot build an unrobable bank. So we can't have good be the destroyer of or great, you know, great being the destroyer of good. We have to say, we have to say, okay, yes, we need to be as healthy as we can, but we still need to open up the country. Uh, Instead of saying, well, until we have this perfectly, we're just not going to do anything. I think that will create even more problems. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a multi-billion dollar industry out there because you think of all the different sports out there. Everything from auto racing to football to baseball to hockey to golf. And you mentioned all the vendors. You know, thinking about Yankee Stadium, how many businesses on the outskirts of the stadium are losing tons of money and people not being employed because the stadium remains shut. You know, even the vendors inside the stadiums, um, NASCAR is starting to allow people back in the stands, but you don't see it. I watched uh, someone on a baseball clip that was on one of the local uh, TV stations and I stopped. I, I said, what? I walked up to the TV to make sure I was seeing this correctly. I had my glasses on, Mike. Um, it was paper cutout of people in the stands. There were no real people in the stands. It was paper cutouts. What's next? Canned cheering? 
We've got to open society back up. Yeah, actually, they have some of the canned cheering, too. So there's paper uh, cutouts of people, so it looks like there's somebody in the stands, and they actually play a background of people cheering when something good good happens. So at least the players get the feel like something's happening, and if you're watching on TV, you get a little bit of feel uh, of what baseball or some of the other sports are, are like. Um, so they're, they're trying to come up with um, as much uh, – uh, ways to do things where we can keep <clears throat> people safe and also uh, tend to open things up as, as quickly as possible. But the loss of sports is a huge industry, and the uh, loss of that in the fall particularly is going to be a, a very uh, big hit on the economy, and I think that's going to slow down some of the recovery. Um, so we need to get that operating really as soon as possible. Well, who's going to buy a player's, player's jersey if the team's not playing, think about that, the offshoot of the industries. Cause if your guy is out there playing and you're watching them, you're at the game or at the, whatever the event is, you're more likely to buy the memorabilia than you are. If they're not in full season, correct? That's exactly right. So there's a lot of these uh, peripheral industries that are going to suffer as a result of uh uh, sports not not being in play. Look, I live in uh, New Jersey, uh, down beach from Atlantic City, um, and the governor here has, has not allowed the casinos to fully reopen, although they partially uh, reopen. It's doing a, a real having a real negative impact on the whole um, economy here. But what they hope will save it somewhat is they do have internet gambling, and they've just put in last year sports betting. And sports betting was a big help. Well, if nobody's playing sports, nobody's going to be able to bet on anything, so they're going to get get hurt too. So there's plenty of peripheral industries that are suffering as a result of sports either being cut way down or being completely um, eliminated. And that's another thing. We're going to have to try to get back to normal there uh, really as quickly as possible. I even Um, read a report that Coca-Cola has lost revenue because so much of the revenue was – at stadiums and, you know, people would buy Coke with their hot dogs or that kind of thing. And so it's, like you said, this has been a very broad net that uh, has captured so many people through the reactions to this pandemic. Yeah. So I, I hope the whole thing will be uh, corrected as, as quickly as possible. And the, the sooner we return to normal, I think the better. Uh, Annie, I'm, I'm going to have to jump off here. I got another call coming in. Uh, so okay. um, thanks for having me. Look forward to doing it uh, again, and uh, good luck, everybody. Thank you. And people can find you up on Town Hall and Newsmax. That's correct. And uh, if you're on Facebook, I have a page called Funding Democracy. Funding Democracy. So search that. You can see all my columns I write. And on Twitter, it's at mbusler. That's at m-b-u-s-l-e-r. And I'd be happy if you followed me. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, again, look forward to doing it. God bless, Mike. Thank you for joining us. Thank Mike Bustler, yeah. check him out. There's a link up on our show page uh, to his other medium.com uh, account. Um, Curtis is now calling in our next guest. Hopefully we'll be able to bring him on. Karen, there's so much more to talk about. And it, it's, it's like the Democrats yeah. have always said, never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> and they seem to have found just about every single one they could possibly hurl at us. The other thing that's missing is a volcano exploding or a major earthquake here in the United States. I know. 
Well, Karen, where can people find you and get, get your book? Yes. They can find me. They can reach out to me on Facebook uh, at Karen Watson. They can go to my Twitter account, GOP Buzz One, and they can reach out to me by, by connecting with New Journey Pack. Uh, so I'm out there trying to do what I can to stop this crazy, this crazy train, as we call it. Well, you're always welcome, and God bless you for the hard work you do, Karen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, thank you. God bless you all. Take care. All right, we've got our last victim up on the uh, line here from the Heritage Foundation, a fellow paisano, Jim Carafano. Good afternoon, Jim. How are you today? Hey, como esta? What's up? <laughs> bueno. <laughs> Mota bueno. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, this this has been an absolute great show. Let me just get up to my notes for you. Just bear with me. <laughs> I had all this stuff written for everyone else. We missed one guest. But anyway, um, here we go. We have the election coming up in about 80 some odd days. And we're hearing uh, Russia this, Russia that, uh, China this, China that. Are we in jeopardy of having a foreign country meddling in our election so i i just did a piece on this uh for for fox news up on their opinion page and and i did it right after the uh reporting came out about the um from the office of the director of national intelligence which oversees kind of all the intelligence community and they provided an unclassified report on the foreign attempts to influence U.S. elections, and they talked about Iran, China, and Russia. And sadly, the response to the report from the pundits and the press was basically, you know, it's just, it's just, how can we use this report to, you know, politicize and attack the other side? None of them actually really talked about the the threat. And and what really got lost is there's kind of two parts here. One is if you want to talk about foreign meddling is trying to actually change votes or to meddle in the election process. And the reality is, is in, in 2016, despite all the yelling and everything else, there's no documented evidence that the Russian, Chinese, Iranians changed any vote in 2016. There's, and there's no question about that. There's just, there's just no information that happened. Having said that, the federal government really working with state governments and and, and local election boards, we significantly ramped up the both our proactive going after people who met, stop them and defenses on that did a much better job of election security against foreign meddling in 2018. We'll do an even better job in this election. So the likelihood of any of those guys actually changing votes is zero. But, and that was kind of all missed in all the yelling and screaming and finger pointing. The other issue is, is attempting to influence people. And, you know, Quite honestly, there's there's no question that they're trying to do that. Countries have been trying to influence American elections since we've had elections, but but there's a real question about how much of it is is really effective. And there's no evidence to suggest that they're actually convincing people. You know, I contrasted that with domestically, we have very serious concerns about voter fraud uh, and and protecting voter integrity. One of the things we have at the Heritage Foundation is a, is a large database on a sample of real cases of voter fraud. And, and, but that's a, that's a much, much bigger issue. And, and, and fairly, if we want to focus on election integrity, 
what we ought to be focusing on is domestic efforts on fraud and messing with elections, not you know foreign influences, which which there's actually very, very little evidence that that's having really any impact on the electoral process. Well, there was a, a recent case that went up to the Supreme Court, and it was a New England state. Uh, I don't remember if it was Vermont. It might have been. I'm not sure. It was one of the New England states uh, where temporarily during the primary, the uh, absentee vote didn't need two signature witnesses on it. And the Supreme, and they, they, the Supreme Court upheld that. So now we also have a push for increase in absentee voting and the requirements for that, uh, as well as mail-in balloting. You know, there is a tremendous amount of space for fraud to be committed there. Well, and I think that's the, the, the I think that's a legitimate issue, and I think that's the issue which which we at Heritage have tried. We one of one of the world's foremost experts on voter fraud and voter integrity issues, Hans von Spakovsky in our legal center. And so here's what we know. Look, we, we can't prove the Russians. Look, we, nobody thinks the Russians and Chinese or Iranians are good guys and that they would love to you know, mess with us. That's, that, that's not for question here. But if, you, if you're worried about your vote counting, we have real legitimate issues about voter fraud. And when we scale into these incredible things in the national election, mail-in voting, having less voter places, you know, it raises real issues. You're opening up more space for fraud, and it's something that we ought to be very, very concerned about. Well, you know, I've been telling everyone, especially the Tea Party I still run going on 10 years now, um, I'm telling them to show up at the polling place. And my logic is, if you're safe walking into Wally World, walking into your local grocery store, drugstore, local restaurant to get your meal or whatever, if you feel safe doing that, then you should feel even safer going to the polling place. Because if I go into Walmart and I touch something on the shelf, I have no idea who touched that before me. But if I go to the polling place, I watched during the primary when I went there in person to vote that they cleaned the machine off after each and every person touched it. So I know that machine is going to be clean and sanitary. So I feel free going in person to make my vote because I saw the way they set it up. So why would we think our polling places would be less safe than Wally World? So I, I think there's – you raise a great point. There's a lot of people ask this question, well, what can we do to make sure our vote counts and we have integrity in our, in our, in our voting system? And there's actually a lot of things we do. Right. You're right. I think you can safely vote in person literally anywhere in America if you follow just the rudimentary public safety, public health guidance that we give now. You know, you, you maintain your distance, you wear a mask, you use hand sanitizer. No reason why you can't vote. No health risk. Even if people in high-risk categories follow, I think you follow those simple things, your vote can count. Um, so that's one thing you can do. The other thing is, is even if you get a mail-in ballot uh, or an absentee ballot from your state or whatever, let many states have provisions where you can where you could bring that ballot down and deliver it in person. You don't have to put in many states, you know, a vote. You don't have to put a mail-in ballot in the mail. You can hand deliver it, and if you hand deliver it, you are sure it will count. Um, we can all work to help bring people to voting stations. We can. Uh, volunteer to be poll watchers at voting stations. So there's many volunteer positions where we can do to help support the voting, voting process. And in many, many states, the reason why they're 
might have less polling stations is they're not getting the volunteers they need to run those polling stations. And I think, again, you can participate in that activity, follow basic things, and do it very, very safely. And then finally, I think the voting is something that's run by state and local uh, electoral officials. Uh, they, they're responsible to you. They're your officials. And you, I think, have to advocate for what you want to happen in your state and local community in terms of voting. So there's a lot that we as individuals can do starting right today to help make sure that our voting is done in a way that everybody's vote counts and we're not counting votes that should not count. Well, I've also been telling people that, you know, your mail-in vote may or may not reach its destination. I mean, last week, my post office sent me an email saying, you're going to receive these eight pieces of mail in today's delivery. Well, I still haven't gotten those eight pieces of mail. It's been a week and a half. So why would I trust my vote to the post office? Well, so look, in the, I live in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. My, my, I'm an independent, by the way. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. My vote doesn't count anyway because the city's like 90% Democrat. But all that aside, we got a, a letter from the D.C. Postal thing that said, hey, um, you know, we're going to send you a mail-in ballot, right? And it says, if, if, if you are not the person that we have mailed this card to, mail this card back to us and tell us. Well, they <laughs> misprinted. Well, wait a second. misprinted these forms. So if you mail the card back to them, there's nowhere they can tell where that card came from. So <laughs> kids, if that's it, I mean, like, I think the, the right answer is for the people who really want their vote to count is, and if your state is giving, sending out mail-in ballots, then you sh- they should have a station where you can hand deliver your ballot. So you don't actually have to put it in the mail. You can take it down to election officials and hand it in so you're absolutely sure that that vote is delivered. Well, you know, a lot of states don't have the ability to count all these massive mail-in ballots that they're going to be expecting come November. So we have by federal law the thing called safe harbor where all ballots, all votes must be certified 35 days after the general election. There is no way that all these states are instituting these new mail-in ballots are going to be able to institute that. So if you vote mail-in ballot, you're more likely to be a progressive communist Democrat rather than someone like you, an independent conservative Republican. Uh, Those groups will vote in person and their vote will be counted on that day. And they don't have to wait 35 days to have their vote certified. So I I think voting in person is going to make it a ballot box revolution that will sweep Trump back into office. I look, I think voting in person is, and here I have, so Maryland, for example, has reduced their, their polling places by two thirds. I, 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 that just blew me away. I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, particularly if you have health concerns, you should want more polling places, not less because it'll mean smaller crowds at different places. But again, I mean, if you look at the basic, the basic public health, advice wear a mask use hand sanitizer you know stay a respectful distance from other people particularly when you're inside you'll be fine i mean your exposure chances at, in a polling activity are following those three things are incredibly low um so i, I you know it, people shouldn't be afraid to vote 
because of COVID. I, that's, I think, I think that's just common sense. Absolutely. Curtis, you want to ask a question? Well, I just think it's hard to convince people now who have followed this for what, four months, five months now, because those that I've talked to, um, especially Democrats, they have bought into this because they trust what they, they've heard from um, officials, say like Dr. Fauci and, and Dr. Birch. But the thing is, okay, I say that, you know, these people are flawed in their presentation, and you think others would say, okay, as a critical thinker, let me see if uh, what C.S. is saying is, is, is true or has any validity. But they don't even go there, you know. It's just like, okay, you know, that's what you believe. That's your opinion. So, you know, how do you reach these people? I think well, I, it's, it all goes back to the school system, you know. They have been taught yeah. or indoctrinated to believe government. Well, I think the, you know, I, I think people have to kind of use basic common sense. If, when you go to a if you've gone to the grocery store to buy groceries, you've probably done a similar level of activity and exposure that you would voting, and the and the procedures that you took to go to that grocery store that have kept you COVID free for the past five months, they're going to work just as well in a voting booth. The germ doesn't know if you're buying a sack of potatoes or if you're casting a ballot. It just doesn't know. We go to the grocery store, you wear a mask, we stare at, we stand at a respectful distance, we wash our hands when we get there, we wash our hands when we leave, and we're safe. <laughs> and the only difference is that instead of checking out at the counter, you're, 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 you're using your God-given right to vote. I mean, I mean, if people yeah. don't believe that, but you know, it's, it's the point. It, to your point, right? It's not about what's logical, and, and it's about politics. And if, and if that's, people, that's what I was going to say. People, they're not exactly. reasonable. They're not reasonable. They they're let, letting fear trump logic, or at least you critical know, if you, thinking. If you give in to your fear and you give in to your politics, you know, you get what you pay for, right? And if you don't use the brains God gave you, you know, you know you're going to wind up. It's a lost cause. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I'm looking, we're down to our last eight minutes on the clock. Holy cow. This whole show is just going so, so fast. <laughs> Excuse me. There was so much to talk about and, and they're trumping up. They're really, really ramping up the fear on this COVID virus. When we know we're on a downtick, there's less, you know, deaths occurring daily. Um, but now we're hearing coming out of China that maybe a second wave of something new. What are you hearing coming out of China? Um, look, I don't, I don't believe anything I hear coming out of, of China. <laughs> look, we, we always face the prospects of, of new viruses, of them mutating, adapting, whether they come from, you know, pigs or birds or many other different sources. This is a, this is a fact of humanity that we've had since we've had viruses in humanity forever. Uh, they don't work on a clock. I mean, we haven't had a pandemic of this scale since 1918. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be another hundred years before we have another one. Uh, look, I mean, we can deal with this. We, um, we've done amazing things 
Uh, I mean, I think even if you look at how much the economy's only come back and how a million, you know, the job jobless claims are going down now, putting out vaccines at record pace. You know, I think the reality is, is you know, we should not give in to our fear. I think you're right. The number of things we should not give in to our fears. We should use common sense. I think 99% of what we can do to keep ourselves safe and free, we should be able to do everything. We should mostly everything that we should be able to go back to school. We should be able to go back to work. Uh, and uh, uh, so I, I, you know, I would tell people don't, don't listen to these guys because you guys, you guys got it exactly right. People are now using this public health issue to seize political control, to make people afraid and to make people lemming like do what they say and make them dependent on these on these political leaders who are who are really peddling fear. And the answer is, is if you don't want to live in a world like that, don't give in to that. You're in a free country. Think for yourself. Yeah, well, they can go out and riot and loot, not riot and loot, and not wear masks or get into someone else's face within that safe space distance. That's perfectly fine. It's reparations. We're taking our property back because of Black Lives Matter. No, you can't go to church. You can't go to school. You can't go to work. But you can go out and have no problem with rioting. You don't get arrested. You get free stuff. Uh, you get your face on the news, but nothing happens to you. But heaven forbid you go to church and sing a hymn. Next thing you know, you're yeah, being my, locked up. It's an upside-down world at this point. And I think my the favorite, silent majority my, is absolutely. waking up. My favorite, my absolute favorite one was the church that went to the casino. Because the casino could be open at 50%. So they went and they had church in the casino. Pretty awesome. But you know what? That To me, that's... That, no, it, it sounds funny, but this gives me hope, right? People that are thinking for themselves and, and are not just rolling over and taking this. Um, you know, I, I think the average American, they know the difference between somebody that's going out and protesting for social justice and somebody else that's going riding to intimidate, injure policemen, destroy property, and seize political power. We're not stupid. We can tell the difference between that. And, and I think that's what these guys will find. They have, they've used this crisis to try to push an incredibly radical political agenda. And I will think that they will find in the end that most Americans are smarter than that. Well, you know, I, I got to love my guys, the NYPD. I mean, <laughs> what they're putting up with in New York City, I don't know if I could still be a cop with what's going on. But what they did was the Black Lives Matter leader that has been leading these riots in New York City they showed up at his apartment building, and they were perched on the fire escape outside of his window. They were perched outside of his apartment door, and this guy is calling, saying, they're intimidating me. Well, what do you think he has been doing in the city of New York? They didn't need a warrant to sit on his fire escape. They didn't need a warrant to sit in the hallway outside of his apartment door. They were in perfect legal right, but all of a sudden, the shoe's on the other foot, and it's not right. Gee. They, well, you know, this uh... Yeah, no, you raise a really good point. But I, I don't know if a lot of Americans are aware of this, but the process of organizing a criminal activity, and let's make no mistake, if you're destroying property, if you're using federal officers, if you're intimidating people, extorting them, blackmailing them, um, threatening them, these are crimes. The, the, the process of organizing a criminal activity is in itself a crime. And so the people who are behind this, 
they may not be the guy out there slinging steel balls at people and, and, and tossing Molotov cocktails, but they are just as actually they're bigger criminals than the people, than the soldiers on the ground actually doing this stuff. This only stops. It only stops when we go down and we take down the organization, just like the mafia, just like the cartels, you take down the organization and it stops. You take out the money, you take out the leaders and it goes away. And, you know, I think people like this BLM guy and other people, you know, they're, they're people are going to come after them and rightly so because they have committed criminal activities and they should be criminally charged. You know, we were talking uh, earlier with uh, Dr. Mike Bustler about the economic impact, and we're going to be seeing the economic impact of these riots and looting in these Democratic strongholds, these cities, New York, L.A., uh, New Jersey. You're going to see the economic impact for decades to come. Because when I got to New York City as a cop back in the 80s, we saw, still saw neighborhoods completely devastated from the riots a couple of decades before. This is going to be with us for quite a long time. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something else, too, which is if you think about it, in the year of New York City in the 1970s and 80s, perfectly coincides with the rise of organized crime and the mafia and their hold on New York particularly as they got into the drug trade. I mean, they took a city which is down on its knees and they helped make it unlivable. And it was only after we broke the back of organized crime, after people like Mike Turdoff and Rudy Giuliani and other people went in there and took these guys out, that the city rebounded. Play, a city like Seattle, which says, we will abolish our police department. That is like putting out a sign that says, if you are any organized criminal organization, not just BLM or anti semitic but the, a cartel in transnational gang or the mafia or whatever, come to Seattle. If you're a serial criminal, no matter what kind of crime you like to commit, you're rapist, murderer, I don't care, come to Seattle because the odds are you won't get caught here. Now, Seattle is a relatively affluent city. This is like, this is like having a John Dillinger convention in the bank. I mean, Seattle will be on its knees, it'll, and it'll look worse than Detroit. And, and you know what? Rich people, they will wall themselves off and get guards. Amazon, they'll, they'll move. They'll just leave and go to another city. And you know what will be left? Detroit will be left. And you look at the brave people of Detroit now trying to bring their city back. And they're like, they've been there. I didn't tell you. You know, because most of them have been foreign policy stuff. If you ask me, what's the difference between these organized groups that are moving into these cities, intimidating officials, trying to take power? What's the difference between them and Hezbollah, which, you know, the terrorist group that destroyed Lebanon? I would say nothing. You know, they have a legal strategy. They have uh, their own structure. They get taxes. They, they have a military plan. They, have a, they do their own propaganda. This is exactly well, Jim, this is the exact Jim, same we've, we've got just seconds activity. left. Jim, we've got seconds left. Uh, people can find you at Heritage. Thank you for joining us. We went right down to the line. Thank you for joining us, and God bless. Hey, thanks for having me. Good talking to you. Take all right. care, Jim. That's all we got for today, and Curtis, I'll be talking to you later. Good night, guys. All right.